Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski. Uh, and for the second episode in a row, Patrick is not nowhere to be found. Um, maybe he's lost out there in the woods, still searching for the Blair Witch. So um, I hope he returns next time instead of ending up in a corner of a basement. <laughs> so let's just uh, wish him all the best and hope that he doesn't have a lot of mucus falling out of his nose when he cries. Uh, uh, Seriously, though, he took the night off, um, used up his only vacation day this year, and he will return for the next episode, so hopefully you'll bear with me. Right, frog? No, speaking of frogs, I have a guest that isn't a frog at all. He is one of my favorite humans to talk movies with and listen to. Uh, he is none other than Kurt Halfyard from the Row 3 Cinecast, as well as Twitch Film and the Movie Club Podcast, and I'm sure you can find him elsewhere. Welcome back, Kurt. Uh, it's great to be back. I hope I didn't scare Patrick away. Oh, no, no, no. It's going to be tough. I mean, uh, he's definitely the more talkative of the two, but uh, I think, Kurt, you'll, you'll, you'll suffice. You'll, you'll be a proper stand-in as well. Mm-hmm. Plug in between the bricks, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, man, you were last on for Lars von Trier, and now for this episode we'll be talking about the uh, very lively, optimistic Michael Haneke, um, is it, you know what? You guys bring me in for the European directors. <laughs> I was gonna Michael say. Winterbottom, Lars von Trier, Michael Hennigan, all favorite directors of mine. So mm-hmm. I, I certainly am excited to talk Michael Hennigan. I'm assuming though next time we should have you on for like, uh, like the Zucker brothers or something light <laughs> and fun. <laughs> something, something light and, and, and easily Stephen Brill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this is going to be a very interesting uh, episode because, well, I think at this point most uh, fans of the show or people people who love movies are aware of Michael Haneke. And I keep saying Haneke. You know, it's funny. Like I I listened to a couple other podcasts, watched a couple YouTube videos to prepare, and I kept hearing his name pronounced differently. Even on one podcast, it was Hanukkah <laughs> and Hanukkah. I was like, what, what do you, what is No, I, I, well, I think you're dealing with two things, right? You're dealing with the pronunciation of the name and then you're dealing with the variety of different accents. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you're Austrian. Yeah, it could be. I, you, I, you know what I mean? Or, mm-hmm. or German. Um, but uh, there is actually a website uh, that pronounces for names. celebrity names. And I am the last person, if you listen to any me. <laughs> Uh, on other podcasts to, to bring this up because I mispronounce everyone, but um, that you can go there. Uh, like if you want to know how to say uh, Mia Vazakowska, um, that's how you say it. Good job. Or Shersha Ronan. Um, you can, uh, you can go and find that. I think it's also about, you know, the, the reinforcement you get from listening to other people pronounce his name and I've always heard Haneke. Um, but I did look it up and it said Hana Hanuka. <laughs> Hanuka. But I don't even know if that's exactly it either. 
but I, I'm kind of I'm kind of prone to stick to to Haneke just because that's how I've heard it over the years. Yep, and that's that's how you pronounce. Well, it. just okay. Let, let's not worry about the last name. Yeah. Look at the first name. Oh yeah, and think across languages how mm-hmm. to how every different language pronounce Mikhail, Mikhail Michelle, yeah. Michael. Right. It's just. It's one of these things. We you you know what we're talking about. If it sounds like we're pronouncing it wrong, you're just gonna have to do the mental translation. I agree. Although maybe I should be studying linguistics again. <laughs> <laughs> but it is perfect in a way because one of the chief themes of all Michael Haneke's films is about miscommunication yeah. and misunderstanding right. and listening. <laughs> so it. it Somehow he's given himself a name that fits into the theme of his art. <laughs> yeah. So real quick, couple in-house items. Um, I just recently posted a bonus episode featuring an interview with uh, an actor turned director that I've always admired over the years, and that's Martin Donovan. So that was a joy <laughs> to talk to that guy. That, that is wonderful. Actually, may, maybe the last episode I was on was actually the Hal Hartley one. Oh, what, now I that you mention it. it that's great. Maybe you the Lars von Trusting. But I, I have a soft spot, particularly from Trust, right? Yeah, like that's definitely. where you fall in love with Martin Donovan. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, you know, great to uh, learn about his experiences with, because I mean, I mentioned at the top of the show, he's worked with a lot of great filmmakers, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan, Don Ruse, uh, Jane Campion. And he, he mostly focused on Hal because that's who he spent the most time with, obviously. Uh, but I mean, we got to hear about his uh, directorial debut as well. So that was really interesting to, to hear about. I mean, now he, is, the directorial debut of Martin Donovan, a depressing drama? Mm, yeah, kind of, but I wouldn't say it's depressing all the, all the way through. I mean, you got a guy like David Morris who brings a lot of nuance and, and color and charisma throughout his performance. I think it's, 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 it's great to see like, you know, he, him choosing other great character actors to work with, uh, particularly David Morris and, Olivia Williams, both who I, whenever they're on screen, I just automatically light up, even if it's a minor part in kind of a lesser film. I'm just like, oh, I love those those actors, you know, and the fact that they're all in the same movie sort of working off each other at certain instances is actually kind of the highlight of the, of the film. But it's also one of those sort of claustrophobic two people in a room with conflicting ideologies, as I mentioned on the show. That is... Like the Sunset Limited, like yeah. didactic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's totally didactic in that way, but it's certainly, you know, uh, clashing differences in the midst of this sort of hostage situation, um, and it becomes the David Morris and Martin Donovan show later in the film. And I wouldn't say it's you know completely the most original film. But that scenario is kind of one of my sweet spots. I, I've like Death and the Maiden or Absolutely. Harold, you know, Harold Pinter play or something where you just get, you know, crazy people all in a claustrophobic setting, uh, you know, uh, fighting with one another and sometimes just intellectually. I've, Exterminating I Angel, your fan? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that one, yeah. And another one I, I brought up because I saw it when I was younger and I need to rewatch it, but it's not easy to find. I think it's only on YouTube that I that I know of is this movie Closet Land with 
uh, Alan Rickman and Madeline Stowe, which is just like I, I'm pretty sure that's who it was, Madeline Stowe. Like it's a two person show where he takes her hostage to so, sort of uncover whether or not she has embedded like communist propaganda in the children's book that she wrote. Um, I'm pretty sure, yeah, that came out a long time ago. Yeah. And, uh, British, I believe so. Yeah. And it's something that I've been wanting to revisit just because again, I really like that setup when it's two people clashing together. And I think Martin Donovan did a really assured, uh, job, especially when it comes to working with actors for his, debut film so it was really great to talk with him and include that bonus episode and it's it's very possible that over the summer patrick and i will be able to do more of these interviews which is which would be really cool um and i also yeah the uh the reason why i brought it up in the first mm -hmm. place is that i find that a lot of actors when they make their directorial debut they they tend to go for very dour subject matter um, yeah. because it probably offers acting challenges. You think of um, Tim Roth's The War Zone or, or Gary Oldman's Nil by Mouth or um, oh, yeah. uh, oh, who was man, the, Tim Roth's The War Zone. Good yeah. God. <laughs> Good oh. unbelievable cast. Incredible great film. film. But yeah. hard to watch. Really hard to watch. That's a one-timer um, I think. I don't know. And, it's not something I get excited about revisiting. But it's a great film. I wouldn't mind revisiting it. I think it's on Netflix instant. I, it's devastating, that film. Um, and I brought up, uh, of course, the passing of you know, a great man, Roger Ebert. Uh, and I still kind of want to hold off till next time because I'd like Patrick and I to share our thoughts together because I know <laughs> he was hugely influential and uh, I know he didn't necessarily grow up with at the movies like I did because he's uh, you know about a decade younger, and I just feel like it'd be better for us, um, you know, as a team to talk a bit about uh, Ebert together. And I'm really looking forward to that. And what's going to make it even more special if we hold off till till next time is um, the next guest for the next episode is the other major film critic from Chicago that inspired me to get into movies. Um, and that's Nick DiGiulio from WGN. He's not necessarily a household name at all, but he certainly made an impact um, for me going all the way back to 1990 when he recommended Pump Up the Volume, which I've told everybody over the years that that's a movie that kind of changed my life. And even if you watch it today, I know it's dated, but... Whew, I'm so grateful for Nick to introducing me that. And that's also what made me sort of like a devoted listener to his movie reviews. And that's how I sort of over the years just managed to um, build a friendship and it's going to be great to have him on the show. So I'm sure we'll, we'll relay. And Nick has had a lot more interaction with Ebert personally too. So I think it'll be great well, for all of us to have a talk. One of the real arts of uh, film criticism and certainly something that Ebert did better than anyone else is being able to bring films to people that would not normally swim in the circles that they would naturally find said mm -hmm. films. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, if you're a fan of Brad Bird's Ratatouille, that's one of the chief messages that he explicitly lays out at the end of that film is that a critic's job is not to bash the middle of the bell curve height of mediocrity, although that, 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 that <laughs> tends to be what people 
tend to think sometimes, but it's really to champion smaller films and bring worthy films to the attention of people that are outside uber film nerd circles. Yeah. And I, every year, um, I would look forward to getting around Christmas time, his, his movie yearbook. And that was, you know, like it was almost not necessarily as big as the video hound guide, but all his reviews of the year, you know, I could go through them all and mark down, Oh, he gave this four stars. So I'm going to make a, you know, make an effort to check out, especially if I found, you know, the review interesting and he made the movie sound compelling and he was so good at doing that. And especially in pre-internet days, like Mm -hmm. nowadays, just go to the web, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more, you know, uh, about get Patrick's reaction to the passing of Ebert. So, um, and, and last but not least, because, um, it's, it's rare when I record an episode, I just automatically upload it the very next morning, but I'm going to be doing that, uh, tomorrow. Um, you know, mostly because of the fact that the Chicago film critics festival is starting tomorrow. And this was kind of put together by, um, a number of Chicago film critics, but, uh, particularly f- a few previous guests of the show, and hopefully future guests of the show, too. Uh, guys like Peter Subchinsky, Brian Tallarico, and Eric Childress, and Colin Suter. So uh, they helped put together, you know, the first annual uh, film festival uh, coordinated by Chicago critics, and they did a pretty good job with the lineup. They're showing Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, which I can't wait to watch because <laughs> I'm such a huge fan of her other films, and William Friedkin is dropping by with a 35 millimeter print of Sorcerer. Oh, jealous. <laughs> I know. I I we're all going to get it on Blu-ray shortly. They yeah. just announced that they're going to finally yeah. get this film. It's due, uh, but to see it in the theater mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure he's going to relay more information about, uh, it's coming to Toronto in a few I don't know whether Friedkin is, but the the actual print is coming to Toronto in hopefully a few months. Um, so but yeah, it's not officially. It's going to be great, you know, to spend Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night uh, over at the Movie Co in Rosemont, which is a gorgeous theater, and you can grab a beer upstairs and some really good food between movies. And um, there's going to be a few Sundance favorites there. Uh, I know the Spectacular Now. Leave Me Like You Found Me, and The Kings of Summer, which I think mm-hmm. out of all of them, I'm really looking forward to that Great one. poster. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, there's also some shorts being put together by Colin Suter, as well as some uh, documentaries showing. So I think it's really going to be a great fest and a good time. And obviously you can uh, schmooze with <laughs> some really nerdy f- uh, film freaks like myself. So, uh, I, I really, if you live in the Chicago area, please try and come out and support this so they can continue to put on this festival every year. And, uh, you can visit Chicago critics, film com to buy tickets and to see the full lineup. So really excited. And obviously for the next episode, I will, um, share more about the experience of the festival itself and the movies and, Hopefully, um, I have nothing but raves for stories we tell since I pretty much love, you know, her other films too. So, um, I think that's about it 
for now, and uh, we'll we'll jump back to hear some plugs from Kurt at the end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. Uh, yeah. So I think with the in-house business done, I'm ready to move on to the what we watched segment. tendency to ask the guests to go first and this is not an exception <laughs> kurt uh what do you want to talk about uh, i'd like to talk about um one of the most underrated movies of the last five years Ooh. um something that i believe 10 years from now more people will talk about than talk about it now uh it's one of those types of movies like the films of Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers Hmm. or PT Anderson that tends to grow with each watching. You may not, it may be a bit standoffish the first time, but then you ease into its particular vernacular, its particular mindset um, as you go along. And then it becomes the best thing ever. Uh, And that is uh, Steven Soderbergh's the informant. Yes. Um, I mean, certainly there's already a, a small cult around this movie. Um, but it's a movie that every time I rewatch it, I'm like, how did a movie this good not have a cacophony of everyone shouting when it came out? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it came and went so quietly. It's more, I, I, I feel that like the praise for, for something like this is even more warranted than traffic because like, Oh, without a doubt. Without I, a doubt. And especially I, Matt Damon too. Everyone that praises traffic, I mean I understand that how Soderbergh filtered and, and integrated stories in an easy way that people could digest and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and watch the BBC traffic, the original miniseries, you realize that it's far better than Soderbergh's version. Right. A Traffic is actually one of my least favorite Soderbergh's. It's a great film. It is a really great film. Oh, sure. But it just, it, it's one of those movies that, it, it's like praising Denzel Washington in Training Day. You're like, that. that's the movie we're going to praise? Like, it just seems like, it's not bad. It's a good performance in Training Day, but it's, it just seems like it's, it's kind of a vanilla <laughs> yeah. flavor for that particular actor. Um, and, and, it's likewise, I feel that traffic is uh, is, is kind of that, but um, I, I mean, I understand why uh, why people ignored or were baffled uh, by the informant because it's it's a movie that doesn't um, you spend a lot of first viewing of that movie rather confused as to what the movie even is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, for those of you who have, have not seen <laughs> um, the informant, it's uh, it's it's loosely based, um, loosely enough that there's a snarky little opening credit for it, which is kind of the tone of the whole film. Yeah. Um, on a executive for a corn processing company, like a huge. Um, multinational agribusiness um, that produces 
various different things uh, with corn, mostly like high fructose syrup that ends up in everything. Like every processed food has has this in it. Um, and he basically goes after his bosses for price fixing um, with the other players in – China and uh, Japan and um, Germany and and wherever else and but it, it, the movie just keeps uh, like unraveling layers of lies and um, and uh, the, the the central character played by Matt Damon Mark Whitaker uh, it follows him for like four years uh, and then the the epilogue jumps forward a few more and you just you you really it's really hard to wrap your brain around it and then Soderbergh further baffles you by layering on um, an old uh, uh, Hamlin Mervish soundtrack or whatever <laughs> yeah. um, which so feels like a 1960s spy movie mm-hmm. um, even though like it's 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 such mundane like it's set in like corporate parks in the middle of Indiana or something. And, and then even further, it, it is first person narrated. uh, um, And the narration to say the narration digresses from the movie at hand is an understatement. I mean, this movie, there's a whole nother screenplay. Like if you're, what are your average screenplay is like 120 pages. There's a second 120 page screenplay of just Matt Damon talking about whatever he feels like talking about the patterns yeah. on his tie, how polar bears hunt, um, <laughs> the stream of consciousness approach to it is like a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And, but I mean that at the beginning you're, you're like, you, you feel that the movie's just allowing you to empathize with him. Um, but by the end of the film, you realize that his brain does not exactly travel the same channels that most people do but he's still very successful i mean he's a phd biochemist that has worked his way up into the executive path in this company mm-hmm. um and uh um yeah like i mean this movie if you put this movie in the hands of of michael mann you get the insider which there no two movies are further from each other in tone um and yet soderbergh has a lot of fun with it he's definitely at his most playful um and yet matt damon as i was saying we, we talked briefly about this on the cinecast the last episode i do not believe that matt damon has a better performance than this in his career past agree more. or the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, and I find it baffling that that was never really acknowledged. And I understand that you're not exactly going to yank the chain of public sentiment of making a rather esoteric, oddly toned, satire, <laughs> like satires are the hardest things to get people to care about in the first place. I mean, if you look at all the great movies that have been ignored um, over the years that have somehow clawed their way back in, all the box office failures, if there's one genre that's consistently a box office poison, it's satire. And then when you start layering in all the other playful elements that Soderbergh does, uh, you understand why it wasn't an outright success. Um, But man, I'm glad he made it. 
Yeah, I know that uh, going back to something like adaptation with Robert McKee saying, you know, God help you if you use voiceover, you know, but this is, it, it feels so essential to the world uh, that, you know, we're seeing this almost subjective perspective throughout from Matt Damon's, you know, point of view. And it's so much more effective because, you know, it, 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 it sort of divests exposition in any way. Like there is no need to explain this, you know, scene going on and let it play out because we got his, you know, often nonsensical voiceover narrations to give us an idea of his character, which is so much better than explaining, you know, plot details because it really reinforces his, I don't know. I I wouldn't say he's sociopathic, but he does. I think his uh, mental affliction of sorts sort of prevents him from engaging in the world in the right way. And he's sort of relying on these crazy lies that he keeps, he's not even aware of them too. And I have a huge affinity for movies about liars, which is kind of why I'm still surprised. And I probably need to just rewatch it. Why something like the imposter didn't blow me away. Um, yeah, that's a, another great liar movie. Yeah. Um, and shattered glass, which yep, I think yep. it's, I think it's kind of more conventional in terms of its storytelling, but it's merely solid. I agree. I, 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 I don't know, but that's one of those movies too that I, if it's on, I watch it and I kind of enjoy seeing, you know, the reveal of who he is and the lies he's told and how everybody around him sort of, well, mostly Peter Sarsgaard starts yeah. to find out about. Uh, he's great in that. Yeah. Um, well, the, the movie that immediately springs to mind, which is a movie that didn't almost didn't even get distributed in North America. It baffled people so much was I love you, Philip Morris. Oh yeah. Um, That's another, it's another really, really overlooked movie. Not as good as the informant, but Mm. really exceptionally good filmmaking. And it's another movie about just an incredible liar. Yeah. And it's, you sort of just, you know, observe somebody who's kind of lost in his own head. And I think, that's why this voiceover, even if we're inundated with it, is kind of essential because you're getting the running commentary of someone who's like, uh, m- you know, machinations keep us wondering wh- whether we can trust him or not. You know, like I think it's it's really impressive to watch Soderbergh also uh, dial back his kind of uh, tendency f- to use elliptical editing. Uh, you know, I mean, kind of like with the Limey and Traffic and a, a few a few of his movies where he decides to kind of be a little bit more tricky with the narrative. Uh, I kind of well, like- there's tricks in this movie. I mean, the narrative is straightforward, but yeah, the reason part of the reason why you almost have to do the voiceover to give character beats mm-hmm. is because there is a lot of plot in this movie. There's a lot of plot. I mean, it's all convoluted and almost. You know, I think even manufacturers, the but there's their a head half of, the time. I think like a lot of, and that's another thing too. That's that's another sort of um, wonderful um, sort of perk about watching this movie is the supporting cast, even if they're just there for a scene or two. Um, a lot of stand-up comedians show up, and yeah, uh, Pat Oswalt 
just yeah. bafflingly as a lawyer. I, I say this on the Senate. Anne Dowd, if you're a compliance fan, uh, right. that kind of star is lately yeah. rising. She has a tiny role uh, in that. The the guy from Community has a major role. He's fantastic. Um, Joel, oh, McHale. Joel McHale, yeah, that's right. Um, as one of the like one of the FBI agents, uh, Scott Bakula from um, Enterprise and uh, Good Old Quantum, Quantum Leap. Leap. Yep. What was his What was his big show? Yeah. I, yeah. Quantum Leap was a, was one of my favorite shows growing yeah. up. Him and Dean Stockwell, what a team that yeah. was. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it it just is that. Um, oh, and, and here's another little like little in joke is the two men in positions of extreme power in the informant are played by each of the Smothers brothers. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean that's just funny. Yeah. No. I mean that's and it's not gimmicky. No, it's not like you barely. Well, they're much older now, so you barely recognize them anyway. You you, you kind of have this itching sensation that I know who that is, but it doesn't come out right away because they're they're not exactly guys that show up in a ton of movies. Right. Um, yeah, I, the one thing that I that I really like about the informant too is that it has a it has a a big collection of characters. It's not mm-hmm. like we're gonna narrow this down to five or six key people and, 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 and let that play out. I mean, we're well into the third act and he's still introducing new characters, like a lot of them. I mean, it has that, you know, sort of expansive modern television feel to the way it just keeps spreading outwards. Sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and I'd be remiss to, while talking about the movie is Melanie Linsky, uh, the woman, uh, who, I think was her directorial or sorry, her actor debut along with Kate Winslet in Peter Jackson's heavenly creatures in the, in the mid 1990s. Uh, I mean, obviously Kate Winslet went and, you know, had one of like a major A-list Hollywood career. Um, Linsky's always been around and she pops up all the time and she's really good, but she like, again, you're going toe to toe with the best performance of 2009 <laughs> and she totally holds her own. She, I, I almost wish she had more screen time than she does, but she is absolutely fantastic. Cause she's kind of comfortable, but not really have any, she kind of knows who her husband is, but then she just doesn't know how far he's taken things. And she's in there like almost like a parent mm-hmm. telling him to, 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 to go forth, but he's still, the breadwinner of the family and, and all the push pull that's going on with her. I want to be aware, but I don't want to know too much. And it's not in a Machiavellian way. It's in an honest way that people behave. And it's a really subtle performance that, uh, yeah, it is really great in the film. Um, Melanie Linsky, I, if I were to, you know, have an actors club podcast, which would be kind of fun. Um, there are certain character actors who, you know, like you said, sort of, um, you know, pop up in you know, a lot of good movies and just don't get kind of the recognition, maybe because they're not like being, uh, you know, trying to ex- like showcase, hey, I'm acting here. You know, they're just being a reliable presence that sort of, su- again, what's the idea of a supporting actor to support the rest of the cast at times? And she does a great job in this movie, and um, going all the way back uh, to you know something like uh, 
I'm trying to think. Oh, Away We Go. I really liked her in Away We Go. And she shows up in, you know, in smaller roles, like even in Up in the Air. But yep. um, Shattered Glass. She was also <laughs> in Shattered Glass. So um, um, I always – she's another actress whenever I see yeah. her. Call it the honorary Marissa Tomei Award um, yeah. but for just doing the most too. solid support work imaginable, even though she's, I believe, quite capable of – being the central role in a movie, I don't think I've seen that movie. I mean, even Heavenly it's Creatures, um, it's it's evenly split, right? Even though she's the narrator and the the the, the kind of the perspective of the film that you have, it's it's kind of an evenly split film. Uh, unfortunately, like her um, chance for you know the the leading role was in this movie called Hello, I Must Be Going, which played Sundance, and it was just ooh, it was really like a typical Sundancey kind of movie about a woman having an existential crisis and she winds up lo and behold uh having an, a, a relationship with a younger guy and that is all that happens in that entire movie like there are no uh revelations or character arcs that make that movie worth a damn <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's directed by the record clerk from uh, high fidelity uh, todd luizzo yeah that's yeah that's right his other film is fantastic though yeah. uh the the philip seymour hoffman gas, gas hump, huffing, huffing yeah. movie right uh mm-hmm. love liza or yeah that was that no that was really good but this one was really really subpar and it, it felt like i was watching um like a lesser version of enlightened or something it was not I was, yes I, I don't know if you're a fan of ps yeah ps that's right it was okay it, again it wasn't the knock out it out of the park movie mm-hmm. that it could have been but it was sounding better than the one you're describing right well i mean <laughs> the informant story. is one of those like the truth is stranger than fiction kind of stories and it's you know also kind of a surprising film as it goes along too um you know because you just ne- you can't ever really understand where he's coming from but it's also like questioning his validity throughout is he being sincere who is he siding with and it's crazy like the 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 atmosphere and score kind of have like this 70s crime caper vibe to it but um you know maybe he threw a bunch of elements together into a blender but i feel like man that's a, a it all worked it all came out into a like a really smooth um, not, I would I, I wouldn't outright call it uh, a comedy, but it's it's definitely a, a character study that is compelling from beginning to end, and a lot of that I attribute to Damon for sort of being game and uh, going out of his comfort zone. Well, it's funny because if you watch the Oceans series, also directed by Soderbergh, um, one of the subplots in that is. George Clooney and Brad Pitt, two highly prestigious A-list stars kind of taking Matt Damon's character (laughs) under their wing. Right. As if to say, we want to bring you in to the – to be the sexiest man of the year kind of level. And by the third Oceans movie, he's – like you imagine by the end of the third Oceans movie, he's absolutely there. And then what's the movie that Soderbergh makes right after that? Yeah. The informant. <laughs> yeah, he wants. So he makes I the movie with Damon, in, like the first Ocean's movie or something. I want to be more involved. I want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it's a running joke through all three of them. I, yeah. I mean, he's still kind of justifying himself. Um, 
in the third one. But by the time the third one's over, you're like, okay. In a way, the the, the Ocean series is about um, like the sensei student <laughs> thing going on. It's like in the same way that you you have the large ensemble in Star Trek, but really it's just about Bones, Spock, and Kirk, and everyone else just pitches in. <laughs> um, yeah. It's so it's kind of funny that uh, there's this sort of meta element uh, going on. None of it, of course, is there's no it's not that kind of winking that's going on in the movie. The movie's not even winking in a movie that kind of feels like it should be winking every single moment of its existence. It doesn't actually like a lot of people found the informant boring because the movie does not really let you in on the joke and you, you're just watching corporate shenanigans and, and it, while the voiceovers are charming, I, I'm not saying that's my reaction to it, but I'm a lot of people I've talked with over the years uh, about this movie. Cause I've always been saying like, that was the best performance of the year and one of the best films of that year. Um, yeah. It, it just seemed that it, it's a classic case of the, the, Viewers don't even have the syntax to easily watch a movie like this. But in 10 years, there will be more and more people that, you know, become acclimatized to this sort of thing. And and then it will be, it will look like a, wow, that movie was ahead of its time. That That's my thought. Yeah. And I don't want to write it off as a movie just about a liar because it's actually – you know, as as it shows up within the last like ten minutes or so, it becomes um, a, a very interesting portrayal of mental illness because throughout he has sort of this amicable. I mean, for at, at times it could be overbearing, but he has this manic energy and this desire to help out in a positive way. To you know, I mean, even if it means consequences, like his intentions are good, but he's also delusional. And well, which which I believe is absolutely how, in a corporate situation, higher ups in the corporation, when they talk down and say, "Well, you want to be promoted, mm. this is the behavior." Yeah, that you have, like that it reinforces that behavior. attitude of I, I'm willing to please, I'm willing to work the extra hours, I'm willing to even compromise my principles if that's the culture. Um, that is. That's why this movie is so rich because yeah. you feel like he was – he got to the level that he got to precisely because of his illness, not necessarily because of his technical know-how. I mean that's where – that's where the satire goes deep enough. Like there's no way to process that on a single viewing. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree and I think it's one of those that the the more I watch it, the more I'm going to get something out of it and maybe it will just – replace my yearly viewing of shattered glass because i think it's even more rich and uh you know you have such a great supporting cast and people that you look forward to uh seeing on screen um and yeah and i was a huge fan of soderbergh's latest uh side effects this year and we do written by the same fellow right yeah and looking forward to the i think oddly enough richard lagravenes uh wrote the screenplay for his um uh, Liberace uh, sort of biopic coming out. It's, it's, is it a cable 
movie, I think. It's HBO. It's HBO. Okay. So, I mean, I, I they, they debuted the trailer online not too long ago, and it has that yellow color palette that most Soderbergh movies have. Uh, I mean, it. there's no way to differentiate what you're seeing as a HBO movie versus theatrically. The only reason why it's not being put out in the theaters is because it's an HBO produced film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's just no, it's a, it's a glossy big budget feature. Like Soderbergh doesn't say, well, I'm making TV now, so I'm going to shoot differently. He, he shoots exactly. I mean, there's, there's one thing that Soderbergh can do outside of the ocean movies, which, involved the salaries of a lot of big stars um you get the feeling that he shoots a lot of films on the cheap like not not a cheap as in cutting corners but his process is actually um amicable to a a cheaper way to do that i mean he does half of the jobs even though he gives himself different credits for cinematography and um editing and 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 everything else so he's doing a lot of the above the line jobs um although i don't think other than cosmopolis i don't think he writes his own films like he it's the one job usually you you associate writer director um but he tends to have his writers that he keeps like lem dobbs and scott c burns that he keeps going back to um and uh, anyway, it's uh, – yeah, I, I find – I like that the limey could be made for like $2 million yes. you know, or, or, um, or even a movie with many more bigger stars like Full Frontal. Uh, if we just shoot it with natural light on cheap cameras, then a, a movie that has just an incredibly large ensemble cast costs nothing to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's – it was. It's interesting because when I looked up, you know, more details about the uh, upcoming uh, Soderbergh biopic, uh, I I discovered that uh, you know Richard Lagravenes was writing the screenplay, and I'm going to save this for my for next week for my what we watched movie because um, Richard Lagravenes his directorial debut. I mean, he's been writing consistently interesting screenplays for years and years, and if I were doing a writers' club podcast. I would definitely want to include him because he's such uh, he's he's been kind of uh, a, a diverse talent, uh, you know, doing something like the Fisher King. Um, and most recently, I I caught up with Living Out Loud, which is his directorial debut. And I fell in love with this movie. And I'm going to talk about it more next time. But it was just interesting to find out. Um, doing some more research on Soderbergh that like, oh, Richard Lagravenes, great. Now, I really, uh, not that I wasn't looking forward to the Liberace biopic, uh, the fact that he penned the screenplay got has got me really excited too. He wrote The Ref, which yes. is, which is such that. a... It's my uh, favorite Christmas movie. Which is <laughs> such a pleasurable... Like, I mean, it should fall into that cheap, easy, produced, you know, everyone's just doing, you know for hire kind of work that isn't at all. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the movie was marketed as a Dennis Leary vehicle, which it really isn't. I mean, he obviously he factors large into the film, but man, watching Kevin Spacey, Kevin Spacey and, and Judy, Judy Davis, Davis yeah. go at each other in that movie is, awesome. is just pure joy. I mean, just pure joy. Yeah. Well, uh, I hate to go f- from, you know, the, the positive to the negative here and, Normally, I'm not very negative during the What We Watch segment because I want to highlight something that you know I, I want people to you know check out 
and this is going to be kind of an opposite approach to that. Um, but and also, I did see uh, the place beyond the pines, which I'm going to review on the Film Jive podcast in its entirety, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking more about that movie because I thought it was okay, and I was expecting greatness. But yeah, with, I hear you on that one with um, the Evil Dead remake. Uh, I. I just it completely uh, I felt like <laughs> how could this be so ineffective throughout um, because I mean you're, you're stripping away and I don't expect and I, I, I brought this up kind of you know overall as a review is that I'm not asking the director to indulge in the kind of crazy POV shots or the inventive camera work or doing something but there is no sense of style through through this movie, and well, no, I think the the sense of style is uh, you know played in the key of gore. Uh, it, it's That's a it. it's a movie that <laughs> fetishizes gore, and make no mistake, there is a happy audience for that. There's a, sure. a huge audience for that, and I'm not even I'm. It's not my intent here to knock that audience. I'm not. I if that's if that you know, it's just the way some people like screwball comedies, and some people like noir, some people like gore films, and it's that's first and foremost that's what it is. I mean, and the original Evil Dead films are gory, but they don't feel like they're so much in that genre because they're many other things as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas this said, we are going the highly polished. Uh, very craft-oriented special effects, and that is going to be our stamp on well, this style of story. And the original, you know, uh, the original Evil Dead, of course, celebrated and reveled in gore, but uh, it. And I'm not not saying that uh, the original Evil Dead is Joe Dante's The Exorcist. <laughs> It's like a hyper parody of a film that's super successful and doesn't really have its own genre. But at the same time, everyone knows when you say The Exorcist, everyone's mind thinks to Linda Blair swearing at you and spewing pea soup and, um, you know, craziness going on in the house. Um, And then he just took it to the Three Stooges level. Yeah, but the sense of humor is not here in this version. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that the original was nearly as, uh, you know, goofy as the second one, but no, the original was scary. Yeah, of course. And I I, I must admit the one thing I did not find the new one is scary because it wants to linger over how effectively they can drive nails into people's forearms. It's, it's, it's far more interested in watching its lead actress, cut her tongue in half with a razor blade yep. uh, than it is using that as a scary moment. It's not scary. You're just going gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> well, the audience I saw was just, was just going, sure. you know, and that's isn't scary. Of course Ooh, not. Totally different. When you see a plate of lasagna that's been out for four days and is rotting and has maggots and larvae crawling around in it, you're not scared of it. You're disgusted by it. <laughs> Evil Dead is disgusting. It's not scary. It feels like a waste of opportunity. I mean, I'm not pro-remake in general, but, you know, I was kind of 
like when it started off with the heroin addiction subplot, I was like, okay, kind of uh, interesting, but also, in my opinion, it's kind of cliche to equate addiction with like possession as a metaphor, but maybe they'll do something cool with it to distinguish itself from the original. But they pretty much forget about that entirely once you know the 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 invasion begins and the the these- addiction is not the addiction is there and this is this is the other problem with the new evil dead it, it, it while it does violate this occasionally it has this weird air of grounded rationalism about it <laughs> which is the exact opposite of the original evil dead that's fine though i mean i have no problem with Paul Verhoeven making Starship Troopers, which is exactly the opposite of what Robert Heinlein intended with his book. There's nothing wrong with a remake doing the opposite of its source material. And that can often be quite interesting. But the fact that it spends like that whole thing where you said with the addiction angle, it's not there as a metaphor. It's there to make the scenario feel more realistic yeah, it, it, yeah, it's it's just there so that the audience, which is baffling to me, because we are so far into the cabin of the woods deconstruction <laughs> phase <laughs> that no one gives a shit why they're in the cabin anymore. Like, I, so to spend twenty minutes rationalizing seems like a strange choice. Here's what I was thinking too, because after seeing Cabin in the Woods and enjoying it, I know you didn't, but I did, and. Uh, it, it's watching this kind of reminded me of my reaction to, um, you know, uh, when I saw Scream the next uh, summer, I know what you did last summer came out. And watching that just <laughs> felt like, wait a minute, um, Scream sort of s- satirized all this in a really clever, fun way, while at the same time being an effective horror film. Whereas I know what you did last summer was just like recycling the tropes and conventions of a slasher movie and doing it in a completely uninteresting way. Well, the irony there is that's the same writer (laughs) that wrote both of them. Right. Yeah, exactly. I feel it's even weirder. He dusted off that after he had the success of scream, he's like, Oh, I have this sitting in a drawer somewhere. Maybe, Um, but that's probably the practical (laughs) reason for that because yeah, you're right. It feels like a step backwards, not forwards. Yeah. And, and, and this, I mean, is it as horrible as your Friday Thirteenth or you know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and Nightmare on Elm Street especially? No, it's not, and I'm willing to at least give it that. But um, I I just don't want people to give this movie or more remakes like this a pass because I want more Drag Me to Hell's. You know? Yeah. Well, that's that is actually in a way both Evil Dead Four. And the Evil Dead remake it, at the same time. <laughs> it, 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 it's true to everything that is in the spirit of those movies. And the funny thing is, is that they kind of give a overarching theme in Drag Me to Hell, which really none of the Evil Dead movies had. Um, like the whole personal responsibility yeah. angle, which plays wonderfully. Like in a way, Evil Dead 4 is the best Evil Dead movie that Raimi has ever made. Um, it's just people now have such an attachment to the, the the Evil Dead as a trilogy and Bruce Campbell as a cult actor that um, – and yeah, I will never say that Alison Lohman, who takes everything in that movie like a champ, is quite – has that lanky, plastic, chin-faced sensibility that 
that Bruce Campbell has, but they're the filmmaking on display in Drag Me to Hell is at the Hitchcockian level. Like there are some shots and the way he lets everything hang to the last possible second before it would be bad. Like he he yeah. just pushes every scene. And the Raimi of Evil Dead, the Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness wasn't near the filmmaker as the Raimi of Drag Me to Hell. Uh, but there are other many other things that make those other three Evil Dead movies great uh, and, and, and probably even better films than Drag Me to Hell. But on a pure technical level, um, Drag Me to Hell is just amazing. Like, I don't mean technical as in terms of the craft or the lighting or the cinematography. I mean the filmmaking level. Yeah. And the one thing that Evil Dead, the remake, um, which I'm now going to call just Ed from now on, <laughs> um, the one thing Ed is missing is really good filmmaking. Like mm. the lighting, all of the film elements are in there. Like I have never seen in a horror movie such a perfect mixture of practical and CGI and not have either of them wreck the other. <laughs> like yeah. there's a lot of I would imagine there is a lot of CGI in Ed, but it's it doesn't stand out. It, it doesn't stand out and, and it's not obnoxious and the practical right. effects are good. And, you know, they just spent a lot of time on that. But the actual storytelling in the movie is horrible. The prequel, yeah. the, the, uh, the prologue, the pre- whether yeah. you like the prologue or not, there's just no reason 15 minutes later to flash back to it and oh God, remind you shit. what you just saw 15 minutes. Later. There's no reason to have the sister or Jane Levy, the main character constantly telling her brother things, the way they handle the lullaby thing is so clumsy. Like it's kind of goofy the way they do it in the, in the evil dead movies. Like it's like, yeah, this is something that filmmakers do in this movie. (laughs) It's just clumsy the way they handle it. And it's clumsy the way they have the, the blonde beardy guy read the book, the way the book is designed is gorgeous, but it's clumsy the way it's integrated into the narrative as a, as a um, comic panel, like checklist of shit that's going to happen as foreshadowing. That's really clumsy. Um, And that's what I felt that the movie becomes boring by its inept ability to tell a story. There's, there's an art to pacing. Watch drag me to hell. It is the most pitch perfect paced. Yes movie of that kind like, it's like there's not a second that is either extraneous or ill-conceived it, there's every second of that movie even if you think the content is goofy and the acting is goofy and the whole thing is a big camp exercise and even the cgi in drag me to hell is kind of shitty and stands out and not the best element of the movie um and yet the actual precise editing for maximum thrills uh, is amazing. It's a textbook. It's a film course movie. And then Ed is the film course movie the other way. Yeah. All of what this is not how you not do it. But I mean, like, Raimi is just a master of craft, and he also knows when to inject levity at the right moments. And, you know, and you can certainly find, like, the uh, gopher broke uh, stylistic zaniness of his camera in Evil Dead 2 to be obnoxious maybe, but I thought I I was like, holy shit, how did he pull this off? How did he get the camera to do this and do that and listen to the sound editing and, well, you know, I, I, I the bring scene that baggage. In, 
to most the scene in now. Evil Dead Two where they're all like they know that there's like a spirit in the room with them yes. and and they keep looking at things and it has that, that sort shit. of reflected yeah. off a mirror work and it has the whoosh sound mm-hmm. every time they look. That is high comedy. Like that is some of the funniest film grammar comedy <laughs> that I've ever seen. There's actually, there's another movie that came out earlier this year, uh, which is another masterwork of using the film grammar to drive the comedy more mm-hmm. than the, like the image or character, like the pure, this is what we're going to focus on and this is how we're going to shift focus and this is how we're going to move the camera to reveal. Uh, and that's um, uh, Quentin Dupuis, um Wrong. Yes. Like the opening scene of Wrong is a masterclass in how to tell jokes with filmmaking language it's just like i said it's like a stand-up comedy of 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 audiovisual filmmaking i'm um, so with you on that movie and i wasn't even the biggest rubber fan but you know seeing that made me want to revisit rubber and be like hmm maybe there was more to it than just oh there's tons you know, of it but no i mean wrong is a major major yeah. step forward from rubber I I, i'm a big way. fan of rubber as well but wrong is a huge step forward and there are just so many um, like I wish more filmmakers knew how to tell the story with the editing. I know that's a cliche mm-hmm. to say show, don't tell, but I'm not even talking about showing. Showing means, you know, you the way that what you're looking at is telling you the story. This is actually how the film is edited is telling you the story. Um, and that's a deeper, much more sophisticated, much more subtle way to tell a story, and that's why when I praise something like "Drag Me to Hell" for doing it, and people are like, oh, it was just a, it was a lark. The "Drag Me to Hell" was a lark. It's a lark with some of the best filmmaking <laughs> you're gonna see. Yeah, um, no, definitely. He he knows how to control the you know every aspect, including editing for sure. And you know, it's wrong worked for me. Uh, you know, as like this deconstruction again of communication in this very surreal yet comical way. And yet like I'm, I'm, I was dazzled by how he was able to, to, uh, you know, sort of streamline this narrative and yet have it edited in a very precise way that, you know, it was like, this is the right beat to end on here. And that is, you know, not always something like, a lot of comedies can pull off sometimes, especially in like, you know, your more improvised films or a Judd Apatow film, they, the scenes go on too long and they overstay their welcome. But in wrong, it's just felt like, yes, this is the exact point where you should cut. And that's how I felt throughout the entire movie. Like I laughed at the right times. I felt like, you know, I mean, I understand people not connecting with it and finding it like, you know, forcefully quirky or it's just not their sense of humor. But I think there's a lot of, filmmaking craft in that film for sure so it's exciting to you know i'm i know he's got another movie coming out so i want to see if he can it's actually uh kind of a side off to 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 wrong uh, i think it's called wrong cops and it's got i mean he's injected a lot more characters but that absolutely fantastic police officer in the movie that looks like an angry <laughs> stephen king um I, I don't know who the actor's name yeah. is um, but he, he's one of them. And then, and then he's got some Hollywood actors and, 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 um, uh, other things, but, uh, not to get off on a, on a wrong tangent here, but, um, William Fickner, 
Oh God. In wrong. So um, uh, doing his Mr. McManus accent yeah. is so wonderful. And it's so is, um, but I like my face. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I could, I want William Fickner to do like an audible audio book of something in, in that, that character. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Hell, his own book, Master Chang's dog, psychic, whatever. <laughs> um, uh, volume two renders volume one completely unnecessary. <laughs> you should just have like little infomercials. That would be oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would totally pay to see William Fickner infomercials. Um, yeah, that, uh, uh, in fact, I mean, I've, I've big many people. I mean, William Fickner's kind of this cult character actor already, but it just I get really excited. I mean, the Elysium trailer debuted online a few days ago, and uh, his name's in the credits. He's not in the trailer, <laughs> but his name's in the credits. I'm like, he's in this. Um, it just makes me happy anytime he shows up, and they give him a pretty juicy role in Wrong. Well, with Sarah Polly actually being in attendance tomorrow for Stories We Tell, I actually wanted to rewatch Go because I haven't seen it in a long, oh long time. So and it all comes full circle. Go is the Rosetta Stone of what William Fickner can do. I mean, yeah. many people think of him as the goofy, blind assistant oh, yeah, from to Jodie Foster in Contact. Yeah. But when he is so menacing in Go and he pulls – uh, the characters in and 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 does an Amway pitch mm-hmm. to them. Uh, you're like, I mean, that's a big spoiler, I guess. But what the hell? Like, you realize that's what this actor is capable of. Okay, let's. Yeah. Now it just got interesting. I mean, it's arguably the best WTF scene in the entire uh, movie of Go, which is a pretty. It's a solid movie, uh, but it's a little. Derivative of Tarantino. Straightforward. It's it's one of the better like Quentin Tarantino yeah. derivatives, mm-hmm. like the pop culture spouting whatever. Yeah, I would agree. Well, so Ed, <laughs> anything more <laughs> to say about Ed? Oh man, not not so much because you know I. It's interesting. Like a couple of people have been um, praising Jane Levy or Le- Levy for her performance and. I didn't see too much that made it stand out from your average sort of scream queen performance. And, um, you know, I, obviously this is a movie where you will cringe if you absolutely, you know, are sensitive to gore of, and you know, there's, that's all I can say if that's what you're looking for. And like you said, there are people who might just be into that and, you know, there's, there's some surprises, I guess, in terms of where things go, but um, it's it, to me, it's also didn't make sense because, like, I was thinking, you know, again, spoiler alert if you really don't want to know about Evil Dead. Um, at the beginning of the movie, we, you know, we see a, f- a father burning her daughter alive, and after I see how um, Jane Levy's character was saved i just thought wait a minute why didn't her father just bury her so she can come back without 
you know, the curse or being possessed or whatever. Apparently that's not written in big block red letters inside the book. So um, uh, yeah. there's no there's no lino woodcut <laughs> panel <laughs> in the book that uh, that that says that. I, I, isn't there a clip? That was my biggest problem with Ed is that it it has this it it wants to be its own movie, but it just cannot get out of constantly having a conversation with the other movies. The other movies. So yeah. they have to repurpose dialogue. Include and it's, the necklace. It's, it's movies made by like the best way to make a remake, in my opinion, is to have very little respect for the original. Like Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant Two is yes. the approach to go in to make a remake. Right. You're you're not precious about the original stuff. You don't feel the need to pander to I mean, look at Cronenberg's The Fly versus the Vincent Price The Fly. Mm-hmm. Look at John Carpenter's The Thing versus Howard Hawks The Thing. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> no shit. No, no, none of those remakes give a crap about the original. Well, there's just too much self-awareness now. But whereas this movie spends – the twists itself into a pretzel trying to say, is this going to be the Ash character? Is yeah. this – the Ash character that also is took me out this of it. Character going to be the person that cuts their hand off? Is this character going to do that? And I, I guess that's fun for hardcore Evil Dead trilogy fans. I mean, I certainly feel like I got, or probably got, many of the references. Some of them more obscure than others, but and, and you know, I smiled or I whatever. I, I, I whatever you can do that obnoxious. I pat myself on the back because I know minutia. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, that's what modern fandom is. It's a collection of IMDb trivia clips. Uh, it's, it's not yeah. really healthy. And well, I, that's not a bad thing. Like, I mean, it's a common thing when you remake or make sequels or whatever, you bring actors from the original films back in to do cameos. You have these sort of kind of blessing elements in it. But my lord, Ed spends a lot of time on it. And even the way it does it, I felt it it did it wrongly. Like yeah, when, it felt when really lazy to me. Those weird point of view, crazy crash zoom moments – that it, they feel out of sync with this movie. Mm-hmm. They, they're jarring in that they do not integrate whatsoever. Um, there's and, no consistency, and I, and that and that's the thing. He's there's no doubt that Fede Alvarez is a incredibly talented director. It's just let him tell a few more stories to earn his sort of. Uh, Boy Scout badge as a storyteller because he's not there yet by a long shot. And the half the reason, well, okay, this reason works because it appeals to the gore side of things. But uh, the other reason why it works is because a, a reasonable chunk of the audience have seen or one of the Evil Dead films. I mean, at least the opening weekend audience. I, I mean, horror movies yeah. tend to fall off afterwards. This movie made a lot of money, um, and and many people are spinning. Many people, the people that don't like. The remake. I think there's way more people that like it than don't like it. But some of the people mm-hmm. that don't like it say, "Well, at least we might get a, a high budget Sam Raimi Evil Dead Four because clearly the market is shown an interest." That's the last thing I want. No, last thing I want is Deadite 
the great and powerful. Like I, I don't even really like Sam Raimi as a filmmaker right now. The last thing I want him to do is make kingdom of the crystal skull. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. I, I I just don't see the need to, uh, you know, conjure up the past and try and recapture the glory of something that was very of its time. And which he did. We did that with Dragon Ball. He did it very well. He yeah. did. There's no better way. That is the perfect original nostalgia. Too. I'm a big, expensive, A-list director. I'm going to go back and make a movie that made my name. Uh, I can't think of a better way to do it than that film. Like, I don't think there's. If he does do it. I will be the first one to tip my hat, but I, I mean, I, I would far more worried. Um, mm-hmm. I would like to see him, um, go into more of his, uh, Cohen brothers mode and, and, and do simple another plan. simple plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would too. Or, or even do the weird campy. I don't even know how to file this. It's almost like a, like a killer Joe kind of mode with, uh, uh the gift. The movie he made with uh, Kate Blanchett and Keanu Reeves, um, it's 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 I believe a little underappreciated. Uh, not a great it's movie. Okay. I believe yeah, that I mean, it- it's it's not upper tier Raimi for me, but I there's things about it I like. You know, there's Kate Blanchett's really good. Um, that ain't bubbling around in his Spider-Man films. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I haven't like seen Spider-Man the Oxlock, too. I have No desire to see it. Yeah, I, I understand. I just think that at this point in time, horror filmmakers feel like they have to, you know, uh, go back to the well. And there's just too much awareness to where, like, oh, I have to pay homage to this moment and I have to do this. And you know, they just they're That's sort of studio horror. There's a there's a huge collection of like almost like genre film festival horror directors. Mm-hmm. Um that are making interesting and original horror movies. Hell, there's even these indie directors that are making glossy studio style horror movies on limited budget, like Joe Cornish's uh, attack the block. That's an old school fun monster movie that, that that's got a big budget or it looks like it has a big budget. It's glossily made. Um, and it's excellent and better than most studio product, um, and uh, and yet they're doing it all, you know, on a tiny little um, budget, right? Right. No, totally. And that's, I mean, f- for me, like, sure, this this the latest Evil Dead has you know been like uh, praised for how relentless it is. But that does not make it a, a great, effective horror movie in the way that something like Wreck was, you know, I mean, that was relentless and that had scares and that had a tight claustrophobic premise built around it. Wreck manages to turn the screws. This movie yeah. does not have a clue how to do that. Exactly. Well, I think we should move on, Kurt, because we're really going to have a very... Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Bye-bye, Ed. Let us yeah. let me never talk about it again. I, I, I must admit, I've spent a lot of time talking about it, and I'm the, the, the most negative one that I know about that movie, and it I, I kind of like that we could tangent about movies that we loved um, oh, when yeah. talking about this one, so yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to have an interesting conversation about Haneke as a filmmaker in general because there are things about him that work and things that I'm not always sure about. And I'm sure Kurt will be more than happy to elaborate uh, 
I'm, you know, him as a filmmaker in general. So I'm really excited to talk about him. So we're going to talk about uh, the director of the episode, Michael Hannah Key. There's a there's a lot of parody songs out there, but not too many about Michael Hanukkah. So I wrote a, a little song for all those nice movie freaks out there who don't get to hear any Hanukkah songs. Here we go. are really wrong. His name is Michael Hanukkah. Hanukkah makes movies and they're all right. He directed funny games and not a crazy night. The piano teacher S&M is sad and messy. He also did cachet not too shabby. Call your dad and mama car. Watch some Michael Hanukkah. Golf clubs and remote controls. You can't turn this off, oh no. Do you like this silly song? Do you want it to end right now? I'm addressing you. Yes, you. Listening through your iPhone right now. Curl up with your grandpa, watch some Michael Hanukkah, his movies are really raw, his name is Michael Hanukkah, don't play the harmonica while watching Michael Hanukkah. Michael Hanukkah was born in Munich, Germany, the son of a German actor and director by the name of Fritz Hanukkah. He was raised in Austria and later attended the University of Vienna to study philosophy, psychology, and drama. After failing to achieve success in his early attempts in acting and music, he even became a film critic and worked as an editor at the southwestern German television station, Sodwest Funk. His future film debut was 1989's The Seventh Continent, which served to trace out the violent and bold style that would bloom in later years. Three years later, the controversial Benny's video put his name on the map. Hanukkah's most well-known film is possibly 1997's Funny Games, which was later remade. He wanted to make a message about violence in the media by making an incredibly violent but otherwise pointless movie. Hmm, interesting, huh? Well, he's kind of a provocateur, and you're about to hear a little bit more about this fact in our discussion on Michael Hannah. Okay. Um, I'm going to start off by saying that I really admire uh, Michael Haneke a lot. Uh, he has... a Tons of audacity, it's you know, and you can certainly label him uh, a provocateur, obviously, because he makes intensely psychological films that sort of play with the audience's expectations. And from a filmmaking standpoint, I can usually count on him to have great cinematography, particularly his use of long, continuous takes and static shots, often. Um, feeling like Kubrick, and uh, I think what also I uh, respond to 
in most films is the f- when horrific violence takes place off screen, it becomes even more powerful. And um, Haneke himself has said, like, the ideal scene is the one that uh, the spectator cannot stand and makes them look away. And I think he's really good at building to those moments. You know, for him, the more intense it gets over time, uh, the better. And his tricks to sort of create drama amongst the characters are never, like, manipulative, even though I... you know, I think some people might disagree, uh, but you know they're not hidden. They're all, usually in the forefront. They're very visible to create awareness that you're watching um, a film. And with that said, do all of his films work for me? Mm, I I would say not, but I love that thematically he tackles this idea head on of people being disconnected from their feelings but often he he dumps he he comes across more as like a scientist presenting a hypothesis and wants to observe the results you know as a as a filmmaker he sometimes lacks something that i personally gravitate towards and that is like emotional investment in the characters i don't think that's true for all of his films um, and maybe sometimes it's just like, well, I'm not in the mood for, you know, something like this right now. I'm, 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 I'm more drawn towards the amicable approach of like someone like Kislowski, whereas Haneke might f- be compared more to, like I said, Kubrick or Tarkovsky. And let's talk about Code Unknown, too, because I, I'm usually okay with fractured storytelling involving a number of characters or even kind of a, a, a languid pace. And there's no denying that he has really interesting themes about miscommunication. Um, but I, sometimes I just felt a little too disengaged and, you know, the, the stories and the characters never were fully fleshed out to warrant an emotional response, except for those long takes and those static shots. And obviously the moment on the subway is fan Fantastic! I loved that. But the connection of, between the narratives kind of seemed insignificant, and I wasn't sure, you know, if I was getting into the cause and effect structure of it all. Because sometimes, like, things like Babel, you know, um, that, <laughs> like, I will, he doesn't condescend to his audience, which is what's something I really um, appreciate about his work in general. But there is something about Code Unknown that I am missing. And I'm sure, Kurt, maybe you can elaborate more. And a, a second viewing, maybe I will have you, that. you have no idea how <laughs> much richness comes out of Code Unknown on a second viewing. Okay. There's, it is I'm dangerous to, I'm very <laughs> to talk to about Code Unknown without watching it at least twice. It it. it it far more is like a like a musical album. It's really hard to judge a musical album on one viewing, even though um, Haneke doesn't at all make films like pop music. He makes films <laughs> more like um, not even opera, but definitely like a higher. Uh, like a classical kind yeah. of music, uh, but in a in in a in a no filmmaker understands 
the significant of silence to play out as music notes than Michael Haneke. And I, I might even argue that no director in the entire history of the medium, even the silent filmmakers, <laughs> realize just how effective silence is used as a tool than well, Michael Haneke. Well, going Henneke. off the symphony, it's the symphony idea too, though, do you feel like Haneke makes it aware pretty much with almost every one of his movies that he is the conductor, you know, like that's the thing sometimes that takes me out, especially even. No. And, and here's, here's the exact analogy. Um, the, the, the best way to possibly describe Michael Haneke in an analogous sense is to call him a magician. And it's funny Hmm. because you get people like, Steven Spielberg or um, uh, I don't know, um, described as a magician. Usually people associate it in filmmaking with special effects and whatnot. But Ricky Jay, probably the current best living magician right now, has a thing he says about magic. And he says that particularly up close slate of hand magic. And, and he says that magic is the most honest of all deceits in that you are told right at the outset that the person is going to deceive you before they go ahead and deceive you. And (laughs) all of Michael Haneke's films are this in a way he's the most honest filmmaker because he's fully aware. He, he, makes the audience aware that they're watching someone fuck with them in a filmmaker viewer way. Whereas someone like a Hitchcock or a Spielberg or um, a Christopher Nolan, they don't want you to know. They just want you to be so into the movie that they can do whatever they can to suspend your disbelief and, and make you, you know, be into this. Henneke's saying, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm telling you you're watching a movie. I'm going to do a bunch of things that create drama or involve you in some way, but I'm always going to let you know that this is an act of creation and uh, and that, you know, the way you interpret or the way you're taking in my movie is only your interpretation and there's just a fascinating i mean many of henneke's films code unknown has one of the best ones uh examples of it uh but all of his films the the opening shot of cachet um oh god yeah the the, these films where you're watching something and you go i wonder what's happening right now and then all of a sudden characters start talking about what's happening and you're like i'm not even watching something i'm i'm watching someone watch something <laughs> and the, the, what you're watching is a video recording or, um, uh, or, or in the case of code unknown, it's, it's, it's the act of a film being made. Um, I oh, mean, that's for, one of the posters for code unknown is, is Juliette Binoche yeah. in a pool screaming. And then it just says code unknown. And you're like, what the hell is that? That's intense. And of course that's the artificial, element in the movie and code unknown has no cuts right mm-hmm. no cuts in the scenes like it every like you're, you're talking about long takes earlier 
every shot in Code Unknown is one take. Like one take. And then it cuts to black and it goes to the next story. And those are the cuts. Uh, except for when Juliette Binoche is in the swimming pool, then it starts cutting. And you're like, yeah. okay, we can't be in the reality of this film because why would he just start being a normal film at, at this point? And then, of course, it's because it's the film within the film. So he's allowed to do it. Like, if there's one thing I love about Michael Haneke is that his films are not just um, these like really aggressive social statements. Uh, they're, they're formalist film experiments. Like he, he's, he's almost like in the same way that Lars von Trier or other filmmakers will put these constraints, these weird constraints. They're not really constraints in Haneke's. They're like his thesis, how he's going to build the movie. He's like, okay, in this one, we're going to do it all as single cuts. Every, every individual scene, no cutting. And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and in, in this one, we're not going to have any music. Well, actually, that describes his whole filmography. He doesn't have any music in any of his films. No score. Right. There's not, no not a single score. one of his films mm-hmm. has a score. They, they, if there's music in his films, it's because someone is listening to music in his films. Yeah, that's he, one of the things I love about you – It's know, the weirdest thing and that's what make his, makes his films disengaging. You don't realize how much you're being manipulated in a movie by score, how much – it's like I say when people are making amateur – like I mean videos of their kids, just amateur stuff. You're not going to put it out there for public scrutiny. You're making it for your family. I'm like put some music on it. Like just <laughs> put a song over it. That It'll just make – Imminently more watchable. Um, and the fact that Henneke removes all that is conscious. Yeah, he removes all these expectations and conventions. and um, it's, But sometimes I feel like he's not emphasizing um, character development and storytelling because I feel like he's too focused on that thesis, you know? And I, I know... Oh, like, he tells overall. drama through the filmmaking rather than mm-hmm. through characters. Okay. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I think that's. Sometimes I can get behind that, and sometimes maybe something like Code Unknown is not gonna, you know, um, affect me right out of the gate. I, but I, I, I sort of get the overall theme. You know, he wants to sort of capture this threshold we have, and sometimes we inevitably just become inhumane. Even just, you know, while crossing the street and being callous to a homeless person. And you know, I, and certainly that subway sequence is something to behold. Right, I agree. Because it's very restrained. Um, but, you know, and it's letting... Oh, no, no, there's drama. lots of little things going on in that scene. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, not it just the, camera the pure simplicity of that scene. Um, I think it was... Um, uh, the Onion AV Club, Scott Tobias, who 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 actually has code unknown in one of the entries of his um, uh, new cult canon, uh, like modern, like 21st century cult films. And uh, it's the only Haneke film he has in that. Um, and he says like the, the, the gesture when the guy finally – like everyone's just staring forward and these three thugs are just abusing Juliet, poor Juliette Binoche who generally in most cases, uh, surveillance accepted, um, projects this sort of very vulnerableness to her um, and 
the way that when the guy finally decides to react, he resignedly hands his glasses to her. Like, I know I'm going to be punched in the face hard for this. Just take my glasses so they're not smashed. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's a, the, the little details like that elevate what is already an incredibly powerful sequence. Um, yeah, it, can, it conveys so much information through the action taking place. But maybe, maybe we should back up a bit. I mean, the plot, you, you brought up Babel, which is a great um, echo. Like, I mean, because Babel is the, the usual way that these sort of films are made Mm -hmm. um, where you, you have like a bunch of different disparate elements that ripple across a central point. Um, Coda known tells it in a different way, but it's basically using that type of movie in the same way that funny games is a home invasion movie. Um, But the movie starts off with uh, again, the probably the longest take in the film. It's gotta be like nine minutes. Um, and it's, and it's, it's really virtuoso because it's done out on a public street. Yeah. I don't even know how that could be accomplished and it's not even like obnoxious about it. It's just there. Um, and so you have, um, this kid and he meets up with his sister-in-law who's played by Juliette Binoche and they talk that he's ran away from home and she's late for an appointment like a, a, a job interview or a movie shoot. Audition. And um, she gives her the, him her keys and tells him to go wait in the apartment until they can have a conversation. And then as he's, as he leaves, Julia Pinoche is out of the frame. He, uh, she gives him like a croissant or something she bought at the bakery. And as he's actually crossing the same bakery, walking back to the house, he just crumples up the piece of paper, yeah. uh, the wrapper, and he just throws it and it just, he throws it onto this panhandling woman. Um, he's in his own headspace. I don't believe that that character is wantonly cruel, like um, Benny <laughs> or <laughs> uh, or basically Arnold Frisch in either of the other two Michael Hennig films. But he uh, then um, this uh, um, South African. He's not South African, but it's African fellow. Um, uh, decides that he's like that. That's just cruel, intolerable. Right. So he calls him on it. And in the in the meantime, you already know from earlier that he just ran away from home. That he's had a huge row with his father, and and that Juliet Binoche said, well, "You can go and chill, but you ain't fucking staying with us. <laughs> we don't yeah, have the he's room." Frustrated, so he's yeah. in this like incredibly tightly wound headspace, so that when this guy challenges him. He fights immediately back. They get into a scruffle. The bakery owner comes out and starts giving them shit for just fighting in the street space. And that Juliet Binoche, who's not that far out of the frame, um, comes back and is like, well, what the hell are you beating up? Uh, my thing. And the homeless lady starts sneaking off. She doesn't even <laughs> want to be around it. And then the cops come in and they start to break up and they give the, they just assume that the, the black guy caused it. So then he gets righteously fucking pissed. He's trying to explain the situation, but the situation is just so fraught with struggle and emotion that he can't properly explain it. And that just makes the cops matter. And then Julia Binoche is just, just, you know, she just wants to protect her brother-in-law and, and in the end, the 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 black guy goes to prison, or at least 
to the cop shop. They just let the the kid go, um, and the cops bring in the uh, the panhandler for questioning. Find out that she's not even a legal resident of um, this country, yeah. Paris or France, and um, they deport deport her to Romania, um, and. Like all of that is just tight. It's a tight nine minutes of film, um, and then the movie has its first cut, and it breaks up and just starts telling all of the individual stories. So you have Juliette Binoche's story, you have her brother-in-law's story, you've got the black guy's story, you've got the Romanian woman's story, and um, it even branches off into sub sub characters like the black guy's father, uh, Juliette Binoche's. Um, husband, who who's the brother, and then they're the, the the two brothers' dad, and 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 the whole movie exists to show you that all of these people in that incident had totally unavailable information to make any sort of decision, and they just made a snap judgment based on. And I think what Henneke is saying is that our entire life is made out of snap judgments. And no matter how much you mm. think you're not prejudiced or uh, prone to just taking shortcuts or you want all the facts or that you're rational, is that we're just incapable of getting through life without making thousands of these judgments. And it, it's echoed in that subway <laughs> scene when the three guys are on there and they just assume from the way that Julia Binoche is dressed that she's some really rich Parisian woman and they just they just mock her because you know they're where they are and she's this rich woman which she really isn't um and and I mean this the 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 the, the black guy also thinks that the the brother-in-law is this spoiled rich kid when he's not really I mean his father's like a f- substance farmer and and so Henneke delights in saying you have no idea what's going on. I mean, that's the title of the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I realize that. And I, I think it does come a lot from, you know, assuming so much when you, you know, I mean, you know what they say. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And I think people inevitably sort of filter everything through their own experience and what they're feeling in that moment. And if they're, you know, either vulnerable or had a really shitty day, they're more likely to act out despite having, you know, a a strong moral fiber, you know, a moral um, kind of uh, overarching philosophy. Like they just, they, they would never normally succumb to that level of intolerance, but because of the circumstances or whatever they're going through, it's it's almost like a verbal violence that well, comes out. It, it's also like a um, a theory versus practice. When you watch mm. a movie like Compliance, and you go, "There's no way I would fall for that," and then but then these filmmakers are putting it into the the messier quote unquote real world where you're not sitting there aware of what's happening. There's three, four, ten other things going on which distract you from having that above-it-all clarity when yeah. you sit back and read a book or watch a movie and you go, oh, I'd never fall for that. Uh, it's because there's – the one thing that Henneke's very good at in making you realize that the world is a very it, – it extends so far beyond the frame of what he's showing you. Like he uses negative space um, – 
really well. Not a lot of filmmakers There's always do something that. going on in the background. Like, or no, there would be sound but no image. Like, yeah. you know that someone's futzing about in the corner, but the camera's not Showing following. Them. Usually yeah. the camera just follows the character. So, But in this case, the camera will just be sitting there still and people will walk in and out. I mean, one of the things actually that makes Reservoir Dogs as compelling as it is is the number of times it – allows negative space to be used instead of just showing the characters. But mm-hmm. I don't want to get too far on a digression with that. But um, you mentioned the subway scene. The best scene in the movie is not the subway scene. The best scene in the movie is not the pullout from from the, oh, the, yeah, from the swingle. Right. The best scene in the film is the opening shot. Yeah, I would agree. That opening that. shot is like such an effective way to begin a movie. It, it definitely is, but it also set me up. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's, I thought maybe he was going to take the more macro level approach to telling this sort of, uh, sociological kind of implication of like, there are no moral absolutes, you know, that it, because society gets in the way there, there's certainly, a reinforced idea of morality and how we should all have empathy. And it's something that we want to contain and, you know, be able to express in all the right ways, but it's actually isn't set in stone. And I thought that opening scene was really effective in conveying, okay, you know, well, not the opening scene, but the, cause I realized, you know, it's actually opens with, you know, kids, uh, deaf kids, that's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, That's okay. the scene. The oh. deaf kid scene yeah. is the best scene in the film. Okay. The 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 real opening, not the nine minute thing that we just described. Right. Okay. The actual <laughs> right right opening okay. scene, mm-hmm. um, where the kids stand up in front, and um, the one kid is playing charades, deaf kid, yeah. and all the other deaf kids make guesses. And I mean, just because Henneke is that precise of a filmmaker. Every one of their guesses is uh, a plot aspect. It's almost like like Henneke's Lost <laughs> is in that opening scene because like each one, I think it's like alone, hiding place, gangster, bad conscience, sad, imprisoned. That's – that's okay, yeah. everything. Like that's that's the movie in the movie. That's um, – that's uh, – um, you know, various different characters. That's, it's amazing. Like, cause again, you don't, you obviously don't get that on first viewing, <laughs> but when you watch the movie obsessively, um, you realize just how much of a, like, for all of its weird editing, uh, it, it, the movie is fucking clockwork. Uh, and, and, and maybe not surprising if you decide to shoot every individual scene as one take, you have to be precise. Otherwise it wouldn't work. it's just as fragments often feel kind of stagey and not organic unless we have those long takes, you know? I mean, there, there were certain, you know, cuts to black where I'm like, wait, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a given sometimes when you're dealing with uh, a bunch of different characters and you're following all them and you're wanting to know more details about what they're going through. So you have to sacrifice. No, no, I would disagree there as well. I think that I've noticed that like we were talking about drag me to hell earlier and how it cuts at the exact perfect moment for Mm -hmm. every scene. Henneke probably knows 
the exact perfect moment for every scene. And he either cuts it two seconds too soon or two seconds too late intentionally, (laughs) intentionally Mm. to fuck you up. I think he fucks me up and I get pissed. (laughs) Well, that's part of it. Okay. Here's the thing. The chief Michael Haneke thesis that is right across at least all of the filmography that I've seen. There's, I've not seen seven continents. I haven't seen 71 fragments, dot, 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 dot. Um, and I've not seen any of his television work. Mm-hmm. But of all the feature films that I've seen by him, the one overriding theme across all of them is that you think because you're a sophisticated, cosmopolitan, bourgeois, French or German, uh, upper class, cultured person that you are liberal and caring and all of those things that city people – tell themselves that they're above you ain't <laughs> and that's and his movies just lay it out i think people uh, have moments where they can succumb to that i don't know if i agree if that's well, being like an overall interpretation of humanity even i mean that might be exactly where he stands and i'm i'm actually kind of grateful that a filmmaker has conviction to portray that regularly throughout his films they don't always make for endearing experiences. No, but what he's saying is that the, what we consider to be somewhat of the ideal situation, you're affluent enough to not be wanting anything. Mm. You've been classically educated. You, you have been given every privilege and opportunity. Most people would agree. You want that for everybody. What he's saying is for some reason that's poison. And he, I don't know if he's ever definitively said why that is, but every one of his why. films says empirically, that's how I view yeah, Germany, I mean, France, Austria, like three countries, Western Germany, France and Austria are all, you know, three of the more, you know, he hasn't done a Swiss movie yet, but three mm-hmm. of the more sophisticated upper tier of European yeah, and culture, I, right? I realize that. You know, classism is a reoccurring issue throughout his films and, you know, often xenophobia, too. And um, it's it's interesting, though, because like if if there's this, you know, tendency for him to sort of talk about the nature of humanity and how it's flawed. And I I know that in the past and a lot of a chief criticism of him um, as a filmmaker is that it feels like finger whacking at times, you know? Um, and if yeah, the, the phrase shrill is found in a lot of reviews mm. of a lot of Michael Haneke films. But he still has subtlety, you know? I mean, if there's a version of like subdued preaching, um, I think he employs it. And I like, I really give him props for being kind of a rule breaker. Like, Oh, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to break the illusion when watching a movie, and he does, which makes for a unique experience, and certainly something like Code Unknown, you're you're taken aback quite a bit. Um, but I, I still feel like, especially in light of you know rewatching Cachet and having that intense you know interracial shouting match that is also built on miscommunication and this internalized anger in the moment. The moment in Cachet works for me so much more strongly because it's within the context and framework of the events taking place in that story because I'm so involved 
with this character of uh, of George and you know in that moment we've had a lot of time spent with him whereas in Code Unknown you don't get that well because Cachet is a personal story with historical undertones and Code Unknown is a story about society I mean yeah the they have such mm-hmm. different focuses I mean if, the, if if you could boil down code unknown to one thing it's the when they're all having dinner in the restaurant and oh, yeah. uh Juliet Binoche's husband is back and they're all sitting around with their friends and the one friend and the photographer friend are a little bit at odds with each other but he the photographer says it's just even though it's ugly and whatever, when he's in the war zone of, of you know Bosnia or wherever he is, Afghanistan, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, civilized life is infinitely more complicated by all the nuance of <laughs> sticking everyone together. And um, I like. That. And then she gets into him on. So yeah, if you boil it down to one thing, it's that civilized life is a lot more. Con- you figure once we've hit civilized, eh? well, once we're civilized. Then everything just works. No, <laughs> not at all. That's when it just starts to get more complicated because we're uh, complex as human and then beings. They, and then the second element of the that the movie spends a lot of time on, and Michael Haneke spends a lot of time on, is and it's a total commentary on his own filmmaking process. Is what is the role of the person operating the camera? Like the the the, the one character in the movie is literally a photographer. He's a war photographer, so he's taking mm. photos rather than going in and you know if someone's on fire, you you don't throw a blanket on them. You take a photo, <laughs> and 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 then later in in the film, he's seen to be taking these um, uh, series of photos on the subway where he's rigged his camera to sit on his chest with an auto uh, clicker and he's, he's got a whole gallery, which they show in the film uh, of photos that were taken against people's will, which isn't, which is basically underlying that he's doing the same thing he was doing in the war zone, but he has to be a lot more careful about how he does it when there's no gunfire. Cause if there's people <laughs> shooting guns at you, you don't care if there's a guy off to yeah. the side photographing. Whereas if you're in civilization, he's got to do up this elaborate rig and get it all settled. And he fails with the first girl and he kind of has, has to do this to get his photos. And it's just society, civilized society is very, very complicated. And I like that. Henneke spends a lot of his times saying that, even the so-called best of us, I'm not talking like the, um, you know, like the Dick Cheney kind of mega baron of mm-hmm. the world, uh, the Bush clan and, and, and whatnot. I'm talking people that are of the slightly above middle class, just slightly better than average. Those people should be the ideal because they, they're not exploiting other people. They have good intentions. They've got to where they are probably by virtue of hard work. Um, and yet humanity is not there yet. Like even the best of us are still at the mercy of all of our assumptions and our emotions and our – I mean that's another Michael Haneke thing. The road to hell <laughs> is most definitely paved with good intentions. There's two or three yeah. scenes in Code Unknown. Where I think there's a scene where Juliet Binoche is doing her ironing. And she can – because they're in an apartment and she can just hear, again, negative space, shit going down 
in another apartment and she tries to go and help and she gets pain for it. The Romanian yeah, the biggest thing is of course the Romanian woman that um this guy stands up for but he gets her booted out of the country which she totally doesn't want. Yeah. She didn't ask for this guy to step up and defend her. I realize and that horrible consequences for everyone rode to hell. Yeah. That makes complete sense. I mean, especially I realize that humanity is inherently flawed and he's capturing that in kind of its raw essence at times and how, you know, we can succumb to ignorance, even if we think we are not going to ever succumb. And I, I, I definitely feel, you know, throughout my watching, you know, of, of Haneke's films that these isolated problems kind of, you know, especially when you uh, haven't worked on your communication skills or you uh, lack empathy at times, it's going to lead to these outbursts. And, you know, these are caused by this, you know, the same kind of wounds that lead to physical violence. And I like the fact that, you know, he's focusing on miscommunication sometimes verbally and then, of course, in the very opening of Code Unknown, non-verbally. Um, but at, at also, on top of that, he's interested in the communication and language of film to its audience. I think... Well, because <sighs> you're making assumptions about everyone when you watch the movie. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the beauty of Code Unknown, is that he's giving you this play in front of you and he lets you play a little bit of God, you have more information than any of those characters in that the second shot, the the, 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 the linchpin shot of the film, but you still are making assumptions about these characters you know, you, you don't know a lot of things about you only know what the filmmakers told you um, yeah. and I feel like he I, rubs my, you know, rubs my face in that though um, I mean I, yeah, but games. I mean, how many? Like, I, I think it comes across as rubbing your face in it because no one else does this. <laughs> it's 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 almost like illegal to mm. tell people that. I mean, the only other filmmaker that I can think of that was really aggressive about it was uh, Jean Luc Godard. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that where he's because actively. While, while I compare, well, I often compare. Um, Henneke to Kubrick because they have that same icy sort of above it kind of feel to the way they make films and that precision. Um, but Kubrick never, never, ever, ever shattered the fourth wall. No. That was an absolute no-no. Like Kubrick's films are meant to be immersive and they're meant to make you think about the implications, but they're never designed to make you feel like you're aware that you're watching a movie. They're mm. quite the opposite. Well, um, I whereas think about the implications throughout code unknown. It's more of just, I wish I could be, you know, immersed into the story of these people and what they're going through. And I think that just comes from my tendency because I'm going into social work to like want to focus on the micro level, like, uh, plights of every character and well, he's not giving us that and it's funny that anytime a character in a Henneke film does that they're punished for it <laughs> yeah um, I know that's but, but at the same time at the same time there, there's another thing that I think is really important 
of what Henneke is saying is that um, people think that maybe if there's a distracted moment, they would lose their – they could – okay, I was in the moment. So I lost my value system. It was like the Malcolm Gladwell blink thing, like my instincts that I cannot – I can control but I can't control on a micro time scale took over and that caused the situation. But that's not the case with Cozen Unknown either because the subway scene is quite indicative of that. It's also that um, the, the ability – I mean the white ribbon goes right nuts into this. The ability to just stand by. Mm-hmm. While yeah. shit is happening. Like the subway scene and is no very indicative of horrible things happening and everyone on the train doing nothing. <laughs> um, and that's just as bad as getting involved without having complete possession of all the information. Um, yeah, he wants to keep the viewer on you know their toes and sort of question the validity of what they're watching but uh it's tough because i i I feel (laughs) jerked around (laughs) you know and that takes me out of the movie when there's certain i mean i realize it's sort of a part of his thesis though and i'm not like saying oh it's completely out of left field or even something in like breaking the fourth wall in funny games is completely out of left field uh, and it's, you know, I read a description of him, I think it was on uh, Senses of Cinema, as someone who makes deliberate cinema of disturbance. And I think, you know, like, I love when that's done effectively. Like, one of my favorite movies is Lodge Kerrigan's uh, Keen, in which we literally experience the point of view of a schizophrenic's paranoia. And I like being... Strangely, it's or the diving bell and the butterfly is another very subjective. But he questions the manipulation we experience, and but I feel like he's being manipulative himself, or like there's contradictions there, even if I can't specifically articulate it. No, the the reason why Henneke comes across as shrill or rubbing your nose in it or distancing you by that is because I believe he feels like those people on the subway, uh, very few people take uh, a direct interest in civic responsibility and questioning. And if no one else is doing it, you come across shrill just by the fact of bringing it up. Like it's like, Oh, we didn't want you to bring that up. Um, and so you come across like an asshole because no one else wants to talk about it. I mean, isn't that I mean like, I mean the White Ribbon is his World War II movie, even though it's set before World War One, mm-hmm. but it's that whole well, uh all the rich good Germans just ignored it and everyone in the world for a long time ignored it. And what's worse? The guy that comes in punching you in the face or everyone that doesn't help standing off to their side. <laughs> no, it's worse. Both of them like, are helped. I think something like Cache probably just responds to me because it, 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 it's, it's delving into uh, like internalized um, trauma or, you know, like ignorance, just trying to sweep, I trying to sweep things under the rug. And, but the what, fascinating uh, thing with Cache is that, um, Juliette Binoche is often treated the way the audience would be in a normal Michael Haneke film in that um, Daniel Otteo will not tell her 
<laughs> what's going on. Yeah. And yeah. she's like, why? She gets so mad at him because he won't tell her anything. And he, and then he, then when he starts lying, like at first it's by omission, which is not good, but I guess is less bad than flat out lying to her. Like I, I believe that, I mean, I, I'm far more partial to the um, Isabel Hubert mm-hmm. Michael Haneke films than to the Juliette Binoche Michael Haneke films, if that makes any sense. Um, but if there's one thing that he's very effective in cachet and that makes it probably his most humanist film uh, is that at least you understand the emotion that Binoche's character is going through. She's afraid for herself. She's afraid for her son. She's she has no idea what's going on. She knows her husband knows something, but it he won't more tell human her. Throughout, that's and, very frustrating, and that's a I believe a frustration most people can relate to. And oh, it's yeah. not finger wagging in the same way that. I, don't get me wrong, I love Michael Haneke's finger wagging, and I think it's totally just. And he doesn't do it with a sense of humor. Um, he's not Lars von Trier. That well, is kind of oh, I, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> up on the excess of it, and yeah. and Michael Haneke is never satire. There's no satire. Even Funny Games, you could say, well, Funny Games is a satire of violent movies. It's not. It's not at all. Um, it's a Critique? logical extension, uh, or it's an awareness yeah. of it. It's not satirical. Um, no, I never got that impression from him. And, and the one thing that makes Michael Haneke's film so great is that he could be the perfect Hitchcockian filmmaker. I would say he that t- with cachet, for sure. He totally could be that because he knows how to manipulate the audience so much, but he has to be the guy that tells you. Hitchcock was never that, ever that guy. And Haneke's just in a different Headspace. The reason why Funny Games is so offensive to people is because if you take out those four fourth wall breaks at precise moments in the film, the film is a perfect example of the film it wants you to hate exists. It's so good at the drama, at the characters, at everything that those fourth wall breaks come across as obnoxious because he's so effective at pulling you back into the film. It feels like a dare, but then he's criticizing you for taking it. Exactly. And yet it's even better when he – like again, I I totally appreciate the the utter showmanship of calling awareness. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Christopher Bowe's Reconstruction. No, actually. It's a a Danish film. Uh, It's a love story that opens with a magician telling you – that the movie is fake and that this is the intent that the director had and here's how films are made. And then it makes the film and never refers to that opening scene again. And you, you forget like you, you're, you're into the movie. He's very filmmaker. And then at the end, you know, like then things start to happen where it comes into question, but Michael Haneke does that all through funny games where, I mean, it's, it's a long time to the first explicit fourth wall break and then there's a fairly good lengthy stretch of time to the second fourth wall break yeah but everyone remembers the fourth wall breaks and forget just how good 
the actual fake filmmaking is in the movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't deny that for a second because, you know, you have, again, an incredibly uh, strong long take after the uh, the boy is shot. And, like, having that moment take place off screen, too, is kind of <laughs> playing against your expectations because you're expecting to see that. And I think that's where I kind of, you know, commend... Haneke for calling attention to that fact. Um, yeah. Although you do, you did make the comment earlier that the violence is more effective when it's off screen. Well, so does it? <laughs> well, I'm saying that. Yeah, but I think people would have liked. He's not pandering when, to the base spectacle of it. When he's making the sandwich, people want to know what's going on in that room. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that's really um, something I've never seen in a movie before to where, I was like, you know, the first time I saw Funny Games, I was like, I, I, I can get behind this, you know, and I think he's doing it in different versions throughout his filmography. But sometimes, you know, he's not like the song is just not catchy for me. And Code Unknown sort of fits that right now. But I'm thinking that what I need to do is... Um, you know, sit back, maybe read an essay or two, or at least... No, you know, no, the best thing you can do, to quote my friend Ryan McNeil, who says he's just, like, the simplest thing, just watch it again. I will. Just watch it. You you found that the movie was, like, felt really long. It was yeah. it was a struggle to get through. You're yep. like, should I finish it or not? It won't be that on second viewing. I, not I, at all. I don't I don't think so. I, it's... It, as I'm watching, I'm like, I've... I've it was one of those things where I wrote like uh, even a small, tiny paragraph. Like normally, I don't feel like I, you know, completely dumb and I miss something with what he's trying to, uh, you know, connect. But uh, I, I, f- I still sense like that disconnection from each um, cut was, you know, deliberate too. And I was thinking, okay, well, what is he trying to say? And I'm not picking up on it right now. But, again, there are plenty of movies out there that you Well, sit- the movie's not actually called Code Unknown, right? <laughs> um, it's something... It's called... Uh, let me see if I can find the complete title. Uh, it's actually incomplete. called... Um, yeah, Incomplete Something. Uh, an incomplete set of voyages or incomplete set of stories. Like, it's... Right. It's... It's meant to be incomplete. It's meant to say that um, it's jagged and messy and it doesn't all neatly slide together. I think that's actually Mm. kind of brilliant because normally like movies are kind of their own self-contained beasts. And he goes out of his way to to say, no, 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 my movie is not that at all. Like there's so many other characters and each character has their collection of friends and family mm-hmm. and those characters have their collection of friends and family and i mean coda known is like like you you brought up babel again before coda known is like in like nine different languages right and and, and one of them isn't even a language it's it's like the deaf sign language yeah. <laughs> so it's like french and then whatever african language and romanian and english and um and isn't it yeah it, it and, and in fact henneke is one of those few filmmakers that that makes films in many different languages. Like he, he's made English films. He's made French films. He's made German films. Um, and, and I, I think he, he acknowledges that nothing is so simple and his films 
even though they feel like these super clockwork kind of things, they're they do have threads that are going outside of the frame all the time. Yeah, and certainly you can look at something like the 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 Deaf Children's um, band, the Samba band, and that's like the only use of non diegetic music. No, well, it, it's I think he carries he carries the music yeah. into the redo of that walk along that whatever street that is. Sure, sure. And, and it's really effective because in a normal movie, that says shit's about to go down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's shit's about to go down music. Yeah. <laughs> like the, that drum, that heavy, heavy drum. Um, and I think that the, the shit's about to go down, it, 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 it's more like the film making its like thesis epiphanies rather than plot resolving itself. Oh, I certainly get that uh, impression from him. And I think like uh, focusing on miscommunication is definitely throughout, but I also picked up on like displacement, you know, people feel um, lost at times and everybody's seeking or fleeing or creating their, well, because cities are crowded, right? if, if, If he said it in a farming community, there would be other problems in tight knit communities, but being lost is not generally one of them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the unique thing about the city setting, I think. Well, hopefully on second viewing, I won't feel as lost, <laughs> you know, because I, I value him as a filmmaker, but sometimes there is a disconnect and I don't know if it's just like, well, I have to be in the right frame of mind or I have to be in the mood. And certainly not all of his movies, especially something like Benny's video are going to make you feel warm and fuzzy. And at the end, and I don't want that from all my movies either. Um, but I think I, I, I want to transition into a movie that I feel most strongly about. And that's cachet because it begins like a less surreal version of David Lynch's Lost Highway. Yeah, no kidding. And that's always the movie I think of when I think of that. Yeah, you know, I was talking earlier about how much I might like movies about liars, but uh, I do love movies that incorporate like surveillance or voyeurism into a thriller. You know, going back to the conversation or Rear Window or uh, you know, a lesser extent, the lives of others. Um, but I haven't actually seen Surveillance, and I know you're a big fan of that. So obviously with that title, I probably should. No, it's not really. It's, oh. it's not actually that. Like hmm. what you're thinking, it's not that at all. That's okay. directed by David Lynch's daughter. Ah, well, nice connection there. But um, so, you know, cash. And it, and it stars Juliette Binoche and Bill Pullman, which oh, nice. is connecting Michael Haneke and The Lost Highway very nicely. Very nicely, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you have a mystery – um, as strong as this in terms of like, all we're really going to do is have these static shots and you think, oh, I'm watching this, you know, from the perspective of somebody walking or standing and looking at a building, but actually, you know, it's the surveillance tape. It's a video cassette left on a doorstep by this anonymous tormentor who seems to be observing um, the lead character's every move. And, Talk about building tension as, like, the videos become more invasive and he tries to track things down. And it sort of evolves into this 
kind of like Kafka-esque version of a Hitchcock movie to where like, you know, even if it has a slow pace, it works in its favor to create dread and this kind of like intimate sense of fear. Well, it goes even further than that because the things that drive the fear in cachet are media. It's the the pictures he sends, like the cartoon drawings. Yeah, yeah. It's the literal videotapes. But if you look at the apartment that – I mean that's another big thing in all of Hennigy's films is that media saturation is, is kind of a – he does it in a unique, distinctly European way. He's not like the natural born killers all over Stone way. Too, but yeah. you look at the apartment that – Daniel Oteo and and Juliette Binoche live in in Cachet and there's one room that is a kitchen table and walls of books. Right. And the other room is a sofa and walls of videotapes. Now there's a literal reason for that. She's a book editor <laughs> and he <laughs> makes a television show right. on books. So there's an actual like practical reason why it would but really <laughs> the reason is is he wants to show these two people that are being crushed by the amount of media that surrounds them and the fact that he uses media to terrorize them is even more interesting yeah i mean you're you're bringing that up too and it's like very much something that I, I sensed and yet didn't wasn't able to like immediately gravitate towards because I'm like focused on the um, sweeping things under the rug element that I brought up earlier. But it's it's certainly connected in not a preachy way surrounding the um, Algerian war and the country's treatment of Arabs abroad in France that, you know, I had to read about, obviously, because I, I wasn't necessarily attuned. But I think in in you know in post 911 it's a political film too and i think that's you know the, what what the character is suppressing is something that maybe you know whole nations have been suppressing into their sort of collective subconscious well and that's exactly the same thing with the white ribbon it's yeah. exactly the same thing with the people on the subway in code unknown mm-hmm. it, or, or for that matter a lot of the people on the street in the opening or second from opening shot in code unknown but um it goes even further that um you can always tell what's really going on in a michael Haneke movie by watching how people ignore the tv Everyone ignores TVs mm, yeah, in Michael yeah. Haneke's movies. They, 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 they'll watch their own video. <laughs> like you're watching the surveillance tapes. Benny watches his own pig shooting and, and later people shooting videos. Uh, but they ignore the – like if you're watching Benny's video, he's doing his homework when there's music videos on or, or whatever. He's not – the only – he does watch some action movies. But for the most part, there's just shit on the, in the background. In funny games, there's like auto racing going on during the execution of the boy and it just goes on forever or when they're tied up or whatever, but they're not watching it. And in the biggest one in cachet is when they're having their big argument in the room. Um, there's a TV on in the background with war footage, like some modern war, mm, something or other. Yeah, and they, they're not, they're not paying attention to that. They, they, they got their own problems, but that's what Michael's saying is like, all of your problems are created because the other people had their own problems and didn't address these problems. And um, although it, it goes a little further, like Daniel Atiel's character, I mean, he was six, so it's hard to really 
come down hard on the guy, but he did do some reprehensible things. But ultimately, it wasn't what the six-year-old did that caused those problems because if the kid wasn't Algerian, those problems would not – you wouldn't have trusted a six-year-old and played to innate biases. (laughs) You would have – thought more rationally for some reason if it's white people. Well, let's think about this. It's white people. Um, but that's where Henneke comes into play where the cops don't talk properly to the black guy in Code Unknown. You know, whereas if it was, and then yet they they let the white kid go and he's the perpetrator as we know it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of a, I always find it pretty interesting that Henneke always has media in the frame that people ignore. And I find it's way more interesting to pay attention to when Henneke puts something in there that no one acknowledges rather than putting something in there that people acknowledge. <laughs> it's almost like it, for him, ignorance is hell, you know, yes, exactly. And, um, and you know, a sin is just forgetting, you know, and absolutely. That's the white ribbon in a whole. Yeah. Kabang, right? Like this this unconscious flow of information that you're accepting by not paying attention to it. That's why Henneke tends to be shrill because he's like, there is this base white white noise line that if I do not dishabituate you to it by being as blunt as I can, then you won't even see it. So that's why I, I tend to be somewhat forgiving with his bluntness because he's asking complicated questions to people that don't want to be asked these questions. Mm, um, yeah, you'd rather point. focus on individual dramas, right? Yeah, than yeah, than yeah, yeah. look at the bigger, more complicated mess of society. Um, well, that's also interesting in context of me, like taking individual therapy classes and then going into a social welfare class and the professor's, you know, think the first thing he says on the first day is don't ignore the macro level, even if you want to focus on the micro level, because it all affects the micro level. And I think, you know, in some ways, that's kind of what Haneke is trying to convey too. is like these little, you know, domestications and family dramas and personal struggles are the result of being ignorant to what's going on in the outside world. I think yeah. that's important to remember. And you know, I, I, I think what what's so great about Cachet is that maybe the, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sort of say like, you know, oh, the average person who just wants to escape and watch a, a good thriller, this is it for them. But I think it can sort of work on them on multiple levels. And I think for me, you know, it, the watching it the first time, and I think he's brought this up too in the past and it came up in a couple of reviews and I know Ebert mentioned it, but that last shot, it was kind of like almost a, a nice summation of Haneke too, because there's so much going on, but you have to pay attention to really yeah. see the connection. I there. never saw it. The first, like I watched it. Um, I, I, I think I saw like the North American premiere at, TIFF. Mm-hmm. And so I saw it with a completely virgin audience. I don't know if it had played Can before. I know Henneke's base is Can far more than North America. But anyway, the um, I remember talking a lot about the movie, but it was like maybe 
a day later that someone said, there's something in that last shot. And, and I had to wait until the movie got its theatrical release to actually, I mean, people had told me like the, 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 the two kids are in that last shot. Um, and I'd never, never see that. Um, I mean, yeah. it's far more simple to see like Polanski actually does a really good Henneke like moment in carnage. The, the bookend oh, shots of Carnage yeah, yeah, with yeah. the kids in the playground are – they're Henneke shots. Like they're absolutely not Polanski shots. They're, they're him going, I like this Henneke guy. Um, <laughs> and that's fine and that's totally fine. But they're simple compared to Henneke. Mm-hmm. They're light you know, because they, 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 you clearly can see what's going on in those shots. Sure. Whereas you cannot spot and, – and the funny thing is in Cachet, he does prime you for it. Because there's a shot midway through the film That's where right. yeah. Julia Pinoche picks him up, and it's hard to spot him coming out which door down to the car. So he's primed you to say it's not going to be easy to spot him. Like th- it's amazing, like how you don't get that the first time, but on the second view, you're like, "Fuck, he's totally given you everything," like in not even a subtle way. But there you have it. But the yeah. the beauty of that final shot is that it's actually kind of a it's one of the rare positive Henneke shots. It's not the two thugs casually throwing Susan Lothar or Naomi Watts, depending on which version you watch, into the water and then moving on to the next family and mm-hmm. terrorizing them. Um, this one's actually – I really do feel that um, the kids have – like I don't think that the kids were conspiring – some people the torture the brain. I, I literally think that after everything that's happened, it's just the guy going, okay, I went and got into a big shouting match with your dad, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> like it's even though there's an age difference between the kids, it's an honest communication with less baggage. I actually think it's, think it's a very positive ending. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like, do you, I mean, do you think that's like Haneke being deliberately ambiguous too because like there well, are some yeah. people wanting to say um oh my god you know they might have a negative reaction to seeing them talking together like oh they planned this whole thing out from the beginning and they were trying you know he was like the son was trying to fuck with the parents and all this and i i, I didn't perceive it that way yeah I, I i kind of i can't remember who wrote this, I remember reading something, maybe it was Roger Ebert, maybe it was someone else, um, saying that the the actual videos um, are made by the filmmaker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've read that somewhere, too. That's They're made right. by the filmmaker inside the movie. So then it, <laughs> it totally destroys your sense of this makes rational sense because that can't be true. But it's, But literally, it is true in the same way that Every film is a documentary of the making of that film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it has that. But that's Henneke's thing. Like he does that in every movie. Like he does that. that, that the opening shot of Cachet fucks with you in the same way as saying something like that about the movie. So that's kind of my thing. The the, the other thing that um, Ebert's review puts all of the significance on, and I think Ebert is just fucking out to lunch on this because he talks about the final scene, but he goes, but the real scene happens. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 40 something minutes into the movie. And then, so I'm like, I'm like, Oh, what the hell is he talking about? So yeah. okay, back to 40 minutes of the movie. And it's a shot at night through the apartment. And it, 
it comes up on the 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 young version of um of the 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 guy that the the, the son and, right. but it's in the modern apartment um and he's got blood he's coughing up blood or whatever but i don't attach anything to that i mean okay it's kind of interesting that henneke is giving you a dream sequence without explicitly saying it's a dream sequence by having him wake up sequence like it's they describe it earlier what the lies he told and since they're lies it's just his subconscious and there is a literal Mm -hmm. regular normal cut dream sequence where um where you see the kid kill the chicken and then come at him with the axe or whatever um so all it is is a dream sequence without the helpful sweaty guy rolling over in bed. And, and I, I, it's, it's an irrelevant scene. It's completely irrelevant. And I mean, it's not irrelevant. It, it certainly adds to the mood and the tone and the anxiety, which Henneke is building, but as a linchpin to what the movie's about, it's a total red herring, literally. So, um, yeah, uh, I think he was, I don't know, off base there as well. I, I think I guess, I guess people can perceive it as a memory that was, had shot that scene to make it a dream sequence and then just went back and inserted it. So I, people are reading way too much into that scene. The, the, the big scene that you should spend your time on and most people have rightfully so is the final shot. Yeah, I agree. And I think, but I think, I don't know if he pointed it out to suggest that, was an actual memory and not a dream because like you said, it's sort of interspersed in the midst of this um, car ride between the son and the father, as opposed to, you know, the, the typical, uh, you know, him in bed. And I think there is a moment where he wakes up from um, a frantic dream or. Yes. Yes, there is. It's a different, a different dream. Yeah. 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 So that, that to me seems like, actually I would, I would go so far to say is like people like to, to put certain filmmakers like filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick, for example, up on a pedestal. And like, he thought about every shot and every prop and every Klieg light and everything. He just like, there's no accidents in a Kubrick movie. He intended that. And that means something. And that's the, the whole thing of room 237. Uh, and there's certainly, when you watch Henneke films, just by how precise they are, there's a certainly a temptation to go that way. I actually think that that scene in cachet is a fuck up. Like it's, it's, it's a choice and that's fine. He can make whatever choices he wants, but it's, it, it's a besides the point choice in the movie. And I do not think for a second it's telling you much other than the fact that Henneke might've slipped up there. In Again, his- I think that's toying with conventions of filmmaking. Like, Oh, obviously this comes out of left field. So certainly it must have some major significance. And I, I didn't get that impression either yeah. when I saw it. But but I totally agree with the fact that I probably saw that movie three or four times and never ever remembered that scene. <laughs> like oh, it's yeah, it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. scene that you just like in the thesis of ignoring shit, which Henneke says is bad, uh to which most people would say, Well, we're only human. Um it's interesting from a structural level that way. It's a, there's a there's a, a Thai horror film uh, from about 12 years ago called The Eye. Uh, it it oh, yeah. has an old American remake, but the original one is very good. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene, it's a jump scare kind of scene in the middle of that movie 
Um, no, not the jump scare. There's a scene in an elevator later on in that movie and it plays out really slowly. And I swear the filmmakers did research on how to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Cause I talked to so many people where, you know, people just use that phrase, but in this case, it's literally so. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm convinced that the filmmakers did research in order to do that. And I, and I, and I tell that only to say that that scene in on a subconscious level in cachet, while it doesn't mean much to the theme or the plot or anything, it does have uh, a more visceral effect. Actually, an effect that Henneke tries not to put in his films. Yeah, <laughs> so in a way, normally. kind of an act. I don't know. I, I look at it as, eh, you know, there's Henneke's. Well, we're only human. Well, I, 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 I kind of went against my usual. Considering um, that as like. Um, because I would never consider Cachet to be like any sort of com- commentary on, uh, you know, on memory per se, but like the distortion of the subconscious playing an effect on the lead character. You know, obviously he's been reminded of of these things based on, um, um, like I guess the well the chicken uh, image that is drawn and given to him on a postcard clearly, you know, makes him remember. And oddly enough, I heard about this too, was that, um, that particular moment is, um, the chicken slaughtering is something that Haneke experienced as a child from his days spent on the farm. So that has stayed with him, which is appropriate. Funnily enough that that scene's also in Babel. Um, yeah, Right. (laughs) That is strange. But I think the way it's interspersed into the film, again, it's like, hmm, what was that all about? But I I don't well, think it's, it's necessary. Like if ter- if ter- you'll allow me to be totally facetious, um, it's not a Michael Haneke movie unless an animal is killed on screen. <laughs> I guess No no I'm not yeah, I'm not even yeah. I'm not even joking that much. Benny's video opens with right. a with a pig being annihilated Anton Chigurh style. Time of the wolf has a horse that is really explicit. Like there's no question that horse was murdered on camera. And funny games, um, the dog funny games has a dog murdered off screen, but delighting in the fact of showing the dog's corpse. I've not seen seventh continent, but apparently there's a, a scene where an aquarium is destroyed and the film lingers on fish as they, uh, they, they, they slowly go through. And I don't know uh, if the piano teacher or code unknown, at the moment, I, I'm not, or, or the white ribbon, I'm not explicitly remembering animal killed, but there's a, there, there's way more films that an animal is killed than films that aren't. Does he kill and the, like I said, the, uh, he, all the, the things he hates about contemporary cinema, the spectacle, yeah. the the whatever. He kind of indulges in his animal murder, like it's his way of saying, "I fucking mean business here." I'm destroying life on camera. <laughs> and I mean, that's a no, no, that's a uh, big no, no. Yeah, of course it is. Pubic yeah. hair and killing animals on screen are like the two biggest no, no's, um, in, in Hollywood filmmaking. That's a shame. <laughs> I, I, well, I must admit I, though, it is, it's hard. Really? It is like, I mean, and the, and this is that whole thing of conditioning. When you mm-hmm. watch the pig being killed in Benny's video, when you watch the horse being killed in Time of the Wolf, it's hard to watch. Oh, of course. I mean, even the chicken in in Cachet is 
hard to watch. It's lingered on too. That's it is. Like, I mean, he lets that chicken dance for the camera, uh, which again, is kind of, I feel like something that he's normally against. Um, but I guess, I mean, it, it just, it all dovetails back into the stuff you watch has an effect on you. I mean, the, the one thing that oh, Michael Haneke likes to do in his films of saying, well, you can't unsee that. <laughs> yeah, and he couldn't unsee seeing a chicken being murdered in his childhood. And I exactly, think- which which is true to life. Of course. Um, and, and which is why I would argue that his films are not entertaining because it would be very disingenuous if you're doing that for entertainment purposes. Yeah. Um, no, it's true. And, but I, I and it's really- funny with Babel, which shows – I love Babel. I really love Babel and I can talk about the the pleasure and joy and sophisticated things going on in Babel. But it is the anti-Michael Haneke film. Even the behind the scenes part of Babel where they talk about – they talk about they didn't kill chicken. They didn't kill a chicken in Babel. Mm-hmm. They made a fake, a very sophisticated fake chicken that they could twist the head off of. Uh, whereas anyone, I'm sure, in Mexico would just twist the head off of it, but they made it. Whereas Michael Haneke, you, there's no fucking doubt in your mind they killed that chicken. In fact, in Benny's video, they killed three pigs to get the framing right. <laughs> um, it's like, uh, you know, we killed three. Um, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> – I think, you know, in the midst of all that, I agree that the final image of Cache does have this kind of elusive hopefulness to it, which is – not something you come to expect. Who knows? Maybe that's why it's, this is my favorite Haneke movie. Yeah, and maybe and it might be why it's his most commercially successful, at least on this side of the pond. Yeah, I, I but I, th- I, I think that that final shot, in a way, is like you know, saying that while sometimes there's this ignorance in the world, you know, we can find hope if we're really looking for it, and we can connect. Or just what he's but, saying is, it just has to. You have to find a generation that is so far alienated Uh. from the previous generation that you can – you know, which I I suppose if there's one person qualified to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, it's probably Michael Haneke. He's like, if you could just stick a buffer in there to allow one generation to properly forget, then we could probably solve that, which is the height of bleak irony in that – it feels like most Michael Haneke films, he's railing against ignorance. Yeah. But in a way, he does at least not so much with the Algerian man's son, but with Daniel Atiel's son, they say that he's disconnected. He's the Benny or whatever. He's disconnected he enough that, that route, yeah. they could break the chain by virtue of him having no relationship with his parents whatsoever it's it and and i think that's kind of what's amazing about michael haneke's films is that it's really hard to really simplify them into what is positive and what is negative um yeah there is you know, some gray areas throughout in the same way that uh, why, why I, I i go to bat for um uh zach snyder's adaptation of watchmen um, is how effective he articulates the the thesis of Watchmen is in that um, a horrible act can often be 
the best act. The, the <laughs> fact that one character was born out of rape and the fact that he achieved world peace by nuking several cities. Um, you know, I, I feel that Henneke is... Yeah, you never thought I would compare Zack Snyder to Michael Haneke, did you? Uh, no, I but didn't see I that, that coming, that- to be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I guess if you want to, you know, look at that philosophy, I don't. I guess it's I don't know who originated it, but the whole uh, all you need for a, a, a great movie is three great scenes and no bad ones. I don't know who originated that. Yeah, quote, that but- phrase seems to ring a bell for me. Um, but I mean, maybe well. that's in there. In, in I feel that you. David Mamet said that. Um, you might be right. Yeah. And um, and I and 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 but Michael Haneke and David Mamet, you cannot get two more opposite filmmakers. Um, David Mamet says, "If there's no drama, cut it." And Michael Haneke says, "If there's drama, cut it." <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny that they uh, that that that. You know, they're very and deliberate in their approach. You talk about all this stuff and about filmmakers and you think you can – like how many different things have we said? Well, if you boil Michael Haneke down to one, this thing, it's this. Whereas that's all bullshit. It's really complicated and um, – Well, he's saying humanity what, is complicated. Quite often be completely parallel and in line. Um, and again, he contradicts himself a little bit. I mean, not necessarily contradicts himself, but I'm just saying like the expectation of violence taking place off screen. Well, the suicide and cachet. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Can I, can I reminisce about this? Um, so again, cachet, I saw at the Toronto international film festival, first screening in North America. I'm in an auditorium with 1300 people. Fuck. And in all of my filmmaking, of film viewing in my entire life, I have never felt an intense singular audience moment as the gasp when that happened. Like it was understandable. Every single audience member was the exact same person for that millisecond. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And possibly the biggest argument I've ever seen for watching movies with an audience. Oh, absolutely. That's why you go to the movies for that yeah. kind of moment. It was, it was, um, and it's really the only moment of, vi- other than the chicken, um, in the entire film. Yeah. People feel like cachet. Whoa, that's an assaultive movie. And you're like, well, it, it goes to show that explicit violence isn't often the entertaining part and the assaultive part is the psychological end of things, which Michael Haneke is the master at. Um, but one last thing I wanted to say with the comparing him and how people do this and I'm guilty of it more than anyone that I know and how that can easily be a fallacy is I, I just said, well, you know, Michael Haneke and Jean-Luc Godard have – this incredible thing in common that they, that they do this um, abrasive, make the audience hyper aware that they're watching a film, um, Mm. which seems to go against the, uh, what you do when you make a movie, you want people to not worry about the filmmaking. Um, Godard's possibly most famous quote is cinema is truth at 24 frames a second. And Michael Haneke has gone on record saying, 
a feature film is 24 lies per second. And he, the way he makes films is the call that into question, which says, well, then Godard and Michael Haneke are not similar. They're the complete opposite in intent. Um, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I know he also said like something like uh, art um, doesn't ever offer any answers, just more questions, which is like, uh, yeah, for, for your films, there are yeah. definitely okay. questions. That's the, okay, there's, here's, if you'll indulge me to go through the list of shit that happens in pretty much every Michael Haneke film. Um, the opening credits are the tiniest font you can possibly imagine against the black screen. Except for funny games. Without sound. The films are shot in long takes. The films make you aware that there's media manipulation. The films attack bourgeois anxieties. Mm -hmm. The films have no scores. The films often have multiple languages um, and an animal will be killed (laughs) at some point in the film. That's, that's not to her filmmaking. That's a lot of signature. It's a lot more than me than most filmmakers. Well, let's touch upon a couple more real quick here since we're running a little late, but I'm really interested in talking a little bit more about Benny's video because I know you are a huge fan of, uh, we can, or, or we need to talk about Kevin. And I saw that. I liked that your Facebook post was, we need to talk about Michael. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know this was a part of his early, as he described it, like a glaciation trilogy, which, um, I don't know if it just means like uh, moving really slowly, but no, it means it means that the that the um, uh, the central character is numb. Okay, yeah, like Benny is is the utmost example of a sociopath. Yeah, I was going to um, say that. Like he just doesn't know. Oh yeah, I just wanted to see what happened. I, I mean, there there's not a lot of guilt, and and then his parents. Who are played by um, uh, Ulrich Mew, the, oh, the, yeah. the actor who gets tortured in Funny Games, the first <laughs> version, and is the listener in the lives of others. Um, and uh, I, I, I recognize the German actress that plays his mother. She's really fantastic. But they – like the fascinating thing – Benny's video is the one Michael Haneke movie I don't like. I, I don't feel like the it. same. I, I can't. I don't buy so the hard parents' to watch. reaction too. I don't know. Well, seems- I think that's genius. The parents' reaction. Y- y- um, I think so too. <laughs> you, you mentioned we need to talk about Kevin. If you've ever seen The Deep End, which is another Tilda Swinton movie, it's got the same plot. Of, oh, I forgot about that. I in the bedroom that has that plot too, for that matter. If you're mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. Um, the sure. idea that the parents will suspend morality in the face of the future of their children. Um, or as an act of revenge for their children or whatever. But um, if there was no, a film that was the thing that I find hard to watch about Benny's video is that um, it's just really – it's icky. Even by Michael Haneke standards, it's just – I just don't want to be in the room with any of these people. I, yeah. I, 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 it's funny that it's generally not a problem for me in movies, but I guess there's a line for everybody and that line <laughs> – um, for me is Benny's video. I, I, if I'm going to watch this subject matter, I will watch funny games or cache. I, I really feel like this was, this was the first run at this. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> he doesn't blueprint. quite have all the kinks out. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like his blueprint, but I know he has this, 
you know, tendency to um, critique uh, oversaturation of media, like you mentioned. And I've, the old shot of Benny's video, the opening shot of Cachet. Right. I, I better never see Michael Haneke with his iPad and iPhone and laptop all going at the same time. Cause <laughs> like he must be so anti that idea. And or the, or the idea that he would do that focused. Like mm-hmm. I think Michael Haneke's chief problem or chief criticism of society is multitasking. I think Michael Haneke said, if we could all single task, we would work a lot better as a society. The moment we start to multitask, the world is going to go to shit. Yeah, and our brains aren't really meant for it, on a, especially the more tasks you add. And, you know, that's... The idea that's, that the idea that Benny is has done the act of killing this girl um, and then he dissociates himself from the act by watching the act on video. Um, And, and that's, I guess it's not quite multitasking, but it's the idea that if you repeat a word over and over again, it loses all meaning. And if you oversaturate yourself with anything, you will become numb. And uh, I mean, his perception is mediated by the technology. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's a scary thought to consider that it actually does happen. But I, I also d- don't buy into the idea of, um, you know, being inundated with these images automatically creates uh, a monster, like someone to, cr- you know. The violent video game argument. Right. Like listening to Marilyn Manson and playing violent video games, and then you're going to go shoot up a school. I don't buy that. It- no, what 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 Michael Henneke is saying a a um, society that allows a young child to have just that much equipment it, it has his parents taking more value in their jobs than in their community. Like that that's the thing with yeah. Michael Henneke. He's not saying that television or um, things is bad. It's just. If you pile enough of these things together, it's really bad. And people tend to want to say, well, what's the one reason? Well, it's like the green energy problem. It's like a a lot of the problems. There's not one thing. There's no magic bullet. There's no whatever. And and I do believe Henneke does a pretty good job of saying that I'm showing you this. I'm telling you this. I'm showing you that the frame is much wider and there's many more things going on and um, and it's not like people like – but they do. They, they always do. They take – anytime someone hates a Michael Haneke thing, they boil it down to one thing. Like, yeah. oh, he's just saying this and it's, it's either cliche or it's shrill or whatever. It's like his movies more than most filmmakers. Stanley Kubrick is definitely up there. They're dense. They're really dense and there's so much going on in them that – um, you probably should not write them off after a single viewing. All of that being said, fuck Benny's video. I I, I don't think I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> I felt the same way, and I was kind of like, well, I mean, this is going to be like his Natural Born Killers, and mixed with we need to talk about Kevin. I'm interested in you know the the sociopathic mentality and how that develops, but I don't think it's done in a very compelling way. I, I, if this one to me felt like the most, the uh, like kind of a slog, and oh, it I, is. I, and I don't 
necessarily, you know, find any of these characters worth spending time with. I mean, I will say that once again, he has a great use of a fixed camera to show the murder taking place. I think that is a great off screen again, off screen, (laughs) interesting choice to, you know, filter that moment through a camera. And I, again, that's also going back. If you want to talk about, uh, subconscious shocks that happen when you're younger, Henry portrait of a serial killer that I think automatically at this point in time, if you just shoot a murder on a video camera and filter it, I'm going to freak. Yeah. You know, no, it's true. Um, thesis, uh, the, the, um, what's who? Amenabar. That's right. Yeah. I've always wanted to see that. How many, how many films have a great, I mean, uh, Gaspar, is it Gaspar Noé's I Stand Alone? There's there's a, there's another French film that depicts a lot of cows being like abattoir slaughtered but on videotape and it makes it worse. I don't know why. But when you see something on videotape, it just has that, oh shit, someone filmed this. Whereas when it's on film, it's all brushed and nice and pretty. Um, whereas video is just inherently makes everything ugly. Even though cachet is not only – not only are the videotapes that they're being sent not VHS – yeah, I mean they're pristine, but the actual cachet is shot on digital video. Right, this is, I believe, the first film he shot on video, um, like where the film part is shot on video. Um, and uh, so there's lots of weird meta shit going on on top of it, extraneous to the film. If you pay attention to those kinds of things, but it's not really critical that you do. Um, that being said, I I really like. Um, Time of the Wolf. Yeah, talk about. I didn't get a chance to see that one, unfortunately, and I really want to talk because about that Time of the more. Wolf exists in a world with no technology. So mm, yeah, he can't do the. There's no TVs in Time of the Wolf. Um, the only time someone listens to a radio is uh, they, they have an earbud in, so you can't hear. Like they, they recite it back to you. Time of the Wolf is the anti Michael Haneke movie because there's no technology in it. Um, it's a, it's, it's basically, I always, I, I think Time of the Wolf might be my favorite one to watch of Michael Haneke's <laughs> films. Uh, but I acknowledge it's not as maybe necessarily his best film, but, um, but it's the one I love watching over and over again. It's so pretty. Um, but, I should make that one a priority to watch that. You, you really should. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but he shoot, it, it's the road. It's, it's what the road film should have been. And time of the wolf was made shot and released before Cormac McCarthy wrote the road. So, but mm, okay. it is everything that I envisioned John Hillcoats, the road would have been. And and when I watched Hillcoats the Road, which is fine, it's a fine film. It's, I think it's, it's pretty it's good. good. I really film. like it. It's just I, nowhere near as good as the book. And everything that the book, not not in the same way, but the kind of visceral response that I had to the book, The Road, which I read first, um, I had when I watched Time of the Wolf, um, which was the first Michael Haneke film I saw in the cinema. Um, nice. So the other ones I, you know, I, I saw in video or, or, or whatever. This is the first time I saw a Michael Haneke film, you know, brand new. Uh, I'm, I'm the first audience to see it again at the Toronto international film festival, uh, back in Oh three. 
But anyways, Kodanon is gray. It's all kind of gray. It's post-apocalyptic, even though it's not, there's nothing really like you don't see cities on fire or anything. You just, you're out in the country and a family, not unlike the beginning of Funny Games, comes up to their house and it's being invaded and um, the dad is immediately shot off camera. Um, And then the mom, Isabelle Hubert, and her two kids, I don't know who plays the daughter in the movie, but she's freaking amazing. Um, they're left out to their own devices and no one's going to help them. And there's there's no TV. There's no – she's got a lighter and a bicycle. That's that's the extent of technology that she has. And they walk the bicycle, not unlike they walk the shopping cart in the road. And there's all of these amazing long takes of them walking through fog. Oh, um, OK. And then there's a scene where they um, – uh, camp in a barn and the son goes off missing and um the mother and the daughter they're in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere and so they're lighting handfuls of hay and it's all like there's no external lighting like this movie is all naturally lit and 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 um and so they're lighting bales of hay and walking around like shouting his name and trying to find him and the mom tells the girl to light a fire in front of the barn like bring some hay out in front of the barn and light the hay on fire so that I can find my way back to the barn because it's pitch black um, and she's off guard she's got her handfuls of hay and she's lighting them one at a time shouting her son's name trying to find him and you see the little tiny fire in front of the barn way off in the distance because she's like a quarter mile away shouting for her son. And then all of a sudden you see that fire growing and growing. And it's not because she's walking back. It's because the barn has caught fire. Hmm. And oh my God, is that an exquisite movie image? It's just stunning. And then typical Henneke thing. Um, like it's his Lawrence of Arabia fucking shot. Um, but typical Henneke, he just jarringly cuts it in the middle and then, Isabel who bears back and like the whole barn is a raging inferno behind them. And the, 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 the movie's been gray and muted green outdoorsy stuff up until this point. Like it's been super foggy. You can barely even see the characters. It's so foggy. And then you have this stark, gorgeous orange red image with the two characters lit in front. It's fucking amazing. Um, I'd love to see his take on a dystopian well, that is, that is, yeah, that's what it is. But then, then, you know, Michael Haneke being, he can't just have the road being his movie. They come to a train depot and then the movie becomes this slowly congealing society of refugees waiting, hopefully for a train to come by to take them somewhere. And it just gets at all the ickiness of racial tension, miscommunication, assumption. He said, she said, so you don't really know the truth. External factors, like there's one kid in the movie, a different kid that doesn't want to be a part of society and he keeps coming in and stealing shit and causing problems and it just raises the tension. And yet, oh, I guess the other thing I never mentioned in my mega list of Henneke things is that there's always some element of classical musical culture embedded into the film. I mean, it's most obvious, obviously, in the piano teacher. But there's a lot of like, even in a more, they go to the, the the show, and here, one guy has a a Walkman with a batteries and a cassette tape, and um, he just plays 
a piece of classical music that the girl that responds to because no one like no one everyone's in a world of shit and at least we have one quiet moment where someone plays some music and and you could just go ah it's like beautiful moment where everyone can actually <laughs> oh yeah society was good at some point or that could create art or something and it's it's a wonderful moment it's a very positive moment and at the risk of spoiling, um, not plot-wise, but thematically, spoiling Time of the Wolf, there's a big religious element of when there's crisis, people turn to religion and superstition yeah. to get through it and um, as a comforting tool. And there's a couple different people in Time of the Wolf that have theories of how the world works and what makes the hmm. world continue to exist. And one one woman has this theory – that she says um, there's like these 36 people and they they pass it down and if one of those 36 people ever die, the world will will come to an end. And, and Isabel Hubert is like, okay, I'm never talking to you again. You're insane and leaves her behind. And then there's another guy later that says that there are these religious people that throw themselves into the fire, martyr themselves – as a sacrifice in order to keep society going. So now you're into kind of a vaguely Christian kind of thing, but not really. And the one little boy, uh, the one empathic character, the one character that is hardest hit emotionally, everyone else has to just turn off emotionally to deal with the shit. The one boy is constantly, like he's running away. He's confused. He, he's, he's just, he's the emotional center of the film. Um, and he, Lights a huge – that's the poster of the film. Um, <laughs> he lights this huge bonfire. So now you're echoing the other shot with the fire burning where he ran away. Now he's running to the fire to throw himself <laughs> in to save um, to save humanity. And, and, and I, I won't tell you what happens but I will tell you that that movie, even more than Cachet, has an intensely positive ending. Oh, uh, Like an incredible – <laughs> it, it it doesn't like like the world doesn't magically it's not like the end of War of the Worlds or something where all of a sudden well we're just back to where we were and we can continue <laughs> on no it's it's just Time of the Wolf's a weird movie because it starts suddenly and then it just does not end at all on the note or scene or place that you would ever think of this type of movie to end yet it does work it does work quite effectively um, yeah I, also Time of the Wolf is kind that. of interesting in that. Pretty much every character actor, non-star that Henneke had worked with up until this point, cameos mm. in the film in some capacity or another. Because there's just a lot of people in this film um, when they're all gathered at the train station. So it's kind of an interesting mix of his regulars all in um, – or people that he's worked with before all in all in one film. But uh, – I'm a yeah. I, I mean, I was gonna suggest it, it. It's not the best movie to talk about if you really want to talk about Michael Haneke because it's kind of a bit outside of his norm. Yeah, like well, there's not a single shot of video in the I, movie. I think that's what I think that's what's interesting unusual. to learn about, though. Like to see, you know. Um, if it's thematically similar but told in a different setting, yeah, absolutely, that's great. Like he, he's still attacking all of his usual 
things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but he doesn't have a lot of the overt crutches. <laughs> crutches is the wrong word, but like, he doesn't have video or technology or super saturation of media or a huge city. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's. Uh, hey, I'm. I, I wish I'd caught it up, caught it in time for the show, but. Um, I'm definitely going to check it out because it sounds kind of up my alley. I guess I say all that and Amor kind of dodges a lot of that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean Amor is – it's a Michael Haneke film. There's no doubt except he's not saying that society is shit and right. we made it. He's like we're all going to die and it's not going to be pleasant. <laughs> that's that's, that's pretty much all you need to, to, to realize when you're watching that movie and it works on – an even more um, emotional level. I I believe that Amor is hands down the most emotional. Yeah, because you spend you spend a lot of time in other Michael Haneke movies going. Yes, you're telling me something abstract about yep. society. Whereas I don't think there's anyone that watches Amor that doesn't have an immediately relatable experience on some level that they're kind of end up watching their own little memory movie. Well, and maybe that's oh, of course. the sneaky thing of Amor is that he's like, ah, I've made this movie, but in reality I'm playing back your memories by making mm-hmm. this movie. And that's kind of clever. I don't know of any movie that's attempted that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm all for uh, wrapping things up here real quick, but I wanted to bring uh, since I asked for it, especially on Facebook, uh, I was curious to see what um, some of our listeners thought. And um, we actually got an email from from Bill, who uh, sort of had, very much like me, Funny Games was his first exposure to Michael Haneke. And um, he thought it might be kind of like a, a, a man bites dog or the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. And he did like the first half and found it to be a well-made homemade, uh, homemade, a well-made home invasion thriller, but it devolved into that finger wagging, which we brought up, um, beforehand, especially once he breaks the fourth wall, but he f- did find code unknown and the piano teacher to be masterpieces. So, um, that's great. Great to hear. I mean, I, like I said, I, I can easily, find um great films f- from from Haneke even something like funny games when i'm made so aware of you know what he's trying to convey i'm not completely taken out of it either so i think um also i wanted to bring up anthony who mentioned on facebook that funny games is a weird movie for him to express his feelings on and Uh, I'll just read pretty much exactly what he said verbatim this time. Initially, I liked it immensely, thanks to the uniqueness of the style and the harshness of the way the story is told. But as I look back, certain aspects of the film bother me. The most prominent is that no one in the movie feels like an actual person. Um, The killers themselves didn't feel like uh, an exception to this and the fourth wall breaking conversations that he had with the audience was an interesting idea, but pushed me farther from the film and made the whole experience, uh, ironically disconnecting due to being so concerned and direct with the audience's voyeurism. 
Um, which I can understand that reaction to funny games. I understand the reaction, but I, I think you're half blind if you don't think that the Ulrich Mew slash Susan Lothar or Tim Roth slash Naomi Watts, depending on which version you watch, that they're not portrayed as real people. They totally are. Like yeah. you may have issues with the villains and he's very explicit about how arbitrary that's going to be. Uh, but I think that funny games pisses people off as much as it does precisely because um, the they may start off like with their little opera game at the beginning uh, as kind of this obnoxious bourgeois kind of thing. I think that the, the, the scene – uh, particularly in the remake um, with Naomi Watts slowly getting frustrated over the eggs yeah. and like the little things that have all added up to like, how far am I going to let society dictate that I'm polite? Um, <laughs> that's the most human thing ever. Yeah, no, totally. I would, I would have had that same reaction. And I think that's, you know, not always something that's easy to portray and something that you want to discover in general, but I, I still think it's effective and it makes for a, a really compelling thriller regardless. But I mean, at the same time, he is making commentary, you know, and I can see people being pulled out of it. And that certainly I am not a fan of fourth wall breaking in movies in general, the opposite of like my uh, certain biases with, you know, surveillance or something breaking the fourth wall. Uh, it just, I just feel like I'm being directly preached to in a way, or at least it it, it does take me out. And all, th- all fourth wall breaks or just funny games mm, fourth wall I breaks? Think, I think sometimes, uh, I mean, I, I just it just bugs me in something like even High Fidelity and Ferris Bueller, even if it's used for comedic effect. I Have you seen the Kevin Spacey show House of Cards? Not yet. It's very effective in okay. using fourth wall breaks more as a – I mean, yeah, OK. It wants to be Richard Third, and that's fine. But um, but more effectively as an expositional tool. Like it okay. – and it's, I okay. feel that High Fidelity is another example where the fourth wall is less about being, oh, I work clever and cool and, and getting a lot of information to you in a mm-hmm. way that's hard mm-hmm. to do dramatically. So let's just have no bones about it and have the character <laughs> turn right and tell you. Yeah. Uh, I, again, it's not enough to make me write off the movie in any way. But and the uh, the fourth wall break in Death Proof is one of my favorites of all time. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's so good, and it's like half a second long, mm-hmm. and it's so effective of putting you with the headspace for the reason for why a movie like Death Proof even exists. It's like okay, we're gonna give you what you came for. After all these girls talking for all this time, we're going to give you what you came for. Here we go. That's yep. exactly what that fourth wall break says. And it totally works. You're right. Um, so let's wrap things up here officially because um, I'm very curious to hear your top three Michael Haneke films, and then I'll go. Oh, you want me to go right right out of the gate? Yeah. Um, uh, top three in terms of my favorite to watch or what I think are – the best three films. Uh, we usually just stick with our personal favorites, you know. Okay, I would I would say um, I would say 
Time of the Wolf is number one. Mm. Um, Cachet is number two, and Code Unknown is number three. Which is funny because I always saying, "Well, I like the Isabel Hubert films better than the Juliette Binoche," and we never really got a chance to talk about the Piano Teacher uh, or more all that much. But um, I just maybe I just feel that Isabel Hubert works better. <laughs> in his films, she's less a tool in a Michael Haneke film. Yeah. Right? I feel like Juliet Binoche is like a tool. That being said, Cachet is just so effective as everything, at everything. Like, I mean, <laughs> in a, it, there's a reason why that one kind of stands out. Um, so I, I can't acknowledge that. And I just, I, again, I, I, I understand the reactions people have to Code Unknown. And, um, and how hard it is to watch that first time. But man, is that a film that grows on you so well. And then it, it, it becomes, you know, like the same way that The Big Lebowski became what it is after so many viewings. Um, and the, the same way I believe, maybe not to the extent of The Big Lebowski, but I do believe Burn After Reading will eventually have its mm, due. Yeah, um, maybe. <laughs> it, it will. Uh, it just takes a little time. Code on is kind of in that zone. Um, so, okay. uh, so yeah, I, and I mean, but they're all kind of close. The only one that I just chuck out of the pile is Benny's video. I really just don't like to watch that movie. Yeah, um, I'm with you as that being my least favorite right now, but, um, I'm, I'm going to stick with, uh, kind of based on all the praise I heaped on it. Cache is probably going to be number one indefinitely. I just think everything works in that movie. Like you said, um, and number two, um, I gotta go with a more, because, like like we mentioned, it's you know a lot a lot of mo- a lot of my favorite movies too. You know whether if it's easy to conjure up that sort of emotional response, and they always used to say that it, it's easy to make the audience cry <laughs> than it is to laugh. Um, a more just works so beautifully as this kind of heart wrenching portrayal. Uh, of a of a couple deteriorating, almost similar to um, Away from Her, which is another movie I love. Sarah Palmer yeah. again. Um, and number three, I'm. It's tough. It is for the number three spot because I kind of want to go with Funny Games, but I'm going to go with The Piano Teacher, which I wanted to rewatch in time and you know have a long conversation about because what an what a fucking amazing performance from Isabel Hubert in that film. Yeah. Everything it's kind of like works for me. I mean, I mean the movie it has some things in common with Carrie. Mm, yeah. Um, oh yeah, definitely the mother-daughter relationship. Yeah, that's what I that's what I mean. I, I think that's the heart of Carrie despite what people remember from Carrie that Carrie works the best because of the mother-daughter thing. But um but then the one thing that I I I find with the piano teacher is just how mercilessly he punishes the, 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 the obnoxious boy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I mean, okay. Definitely. He, he punishes Susan Lothar and her daughter like the, but they're struggling. The, 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 the kid is like the, 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 um, He's not really a kid, but whatever. He's the, the college student is. He's kind of like that, like 
virtuoso kind of protege kind of thing. Like he's mm-hmm. really good. He's legit. He and she and and yet the movie feels the need to punish him on every way possible, romantically, self esteem, everything. Like it's like everything that Henneke hates about like the bourgeois sense, which he is. Which he totally is himself. Um, he just laps it all and just attacks. I mean, yeah, sure, the movie's about Isabel Hubert and her weird sexual predilections because she's been cooped up with her mom in this like yeah. tiniest apartment in Paris. Sexual repression for, for ho- how long? <laughs> who knows? And but it's everything. It's financial. It's sexual. It's it's talent. It's career. It's, uh, yeah, the sexual stuff comes to the fore. Right, but. It's kind of it's an outlet for everything else, and um, I I yeah, it, it's a monster performance it is. Uh, in that movie. But everyone's really good in that movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. It, I remember watching it and just being kind of blown away. Mostly, uh, and he he works really well with actors, which you know that's something that whenever I see directors pulling off so gracefully, um, it's something I really respond to because. I mean, obviously his his main focus is on philosophy and psychology and this idea of allowing films for self-reflection, which is not something every filmmaker wants. Cultural self-reflection as much as personal self-reflection. Right. Moore is the only real personal self-reflection movie. The other ones are all cultural. Well, he's definitely a provocateur, auteur of, you know, a, a pretty high caliber. And I, I guess, you know, code unknown just warrants a second viewing for me to sort of come around to it. And I don't doubt that's possible. Um, so let's say our farewells here, Kurt. Um, it was really great having a lengthy conversation. And I knew that was going to happen about a filmmaker like Michael Haneke. Yeah. Well, he's one of my favorite modern filmmakers. Sure. Uh, because his films are so singular, like there's no one else. I mean, Bruno Dumont is probably the closest working filmmaker. Uh, I like his films less <laughs> than Michael Haneke's. I, to me, anytime a tiff rolls around and there's a new Michael Haneke movie, it's it's a joy. Like I'm like, oh, I can't wait. Even though I know the experience is going to be grueling and in some way she performed like a moor just blindsided me when i watched it just fucking blindsided me um but i i look forward to what i i don't know how many more he's got in him he's up in his 70s Mm -hmm. Uh, i hope he works till that portuguese guy that you know is still making films at 102 (laughs) um so yeah yeah. well well thanks again for being on the show i mean it was uh you know not always easy for me because of Patrick being out of the picture here, but you certainly stepped up to, uh, you know, provide an extra heaping of conversation. Yeah, which I word could, count is my specialty. I hope well, I didn't just, bore the hell out of everybody. You, nev- you never bore me, and that's one of the main perks of listening to the Cinecast for sure. I always enjoy what you have to say. Always find it um, enlightening. Like I, I knew that. With Code Unknown too, you were going to say something like, "Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> exactly." So, um, where can people um, read more of your work and find you and all that good stuff? Plug away. 
Well, there is, uh, as we were recording this, so it's definitely up now, although it may be pushed way off by the time this publishes, um, there is a equally verbose mega conversation, this time mercifully in text form as opposed to podcast form, up at Twitch between me and two other Twitch writers writing talking about all of the minutia of Shane Carruth's upstream color which Ooh, is opening I gotta see um, yeah. as well as my own review of that Terrence Malick's new film uh, to the wonder I've got reviews up at row three so you can find me anywhere at row three you can find me on Twitter at triflick t-r-i-f-l-i-c and uh, yeah twitchfilm.com terrific looking forward to the next movie club podcast uh hopefully i can make it for that one and yeah that's gonna have uh another uh interesting um set of well winterbottom who i've talked about on oh, your yeah. show we're doing tristram shandy a cock and bull story and david cronenberg's the naked lunch and the theme of that show is about adaptation and how you ad- adapt the soul of the author into the text of the adaptation. Mm, I like that concept, which is something that I'm sure Charlie Kaufman knows a lot. About. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, um, of course you can visit us at directors club and please send us your emails at directors club at gmail.com and visit me over on Twitter at instant gym, as well as letterbox at instant gym. I'm slowly trying to write, even if it's just a paragraph or two, um, coming around to writing some reviews, especially over the summer when I'll have more free time. So looking forward to that. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to the next episode because we're doing um, a less controversial and divisive filmmaker, Kevin Reynolds, of all people. And it was chosen specifically from um, a, a film critic hero of mine, and that's Mr. Nick DiGiulio, who I mentioned earlier. So he's going to be on live with us to talk about uh, probably Fandango 187 and, of course, Waterworld. So that's going to no, be... No Rapa Nui? Um, I'm not too familiar with that one. I, I don't know if I've... No, I haven't Let's seen see, that. The Jason Scott... Lee, I, I just remember uh, I remember seeing it in the theater long ago. Uh, I didn't even know Kevin Reynolds until like I immediately IMD beat him when you said his name because I'm like I don't even know who that is. Yeah, um, no, he's Nick is a starch defender of yeah. Well, his his count of Monte Cristo is quite underrated. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, for sure. I God, it's been so long since I've seen that. I want to revisit that for sure. Well, great. Thanks again, Kurt, for being on the show. Um, and we will very, very much look forward to talking to you in a couple weeks about Kevin Reynolds. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you soon. Okay. Cheers. When you said Cuban, though, I thought of the cigar because of inner space. Uh, <laughs> that's when Martin Short becomes uh, the cowboy. And I remember Kevin McCarthy handing him a box of cigars saying, 
these are your favorite, Cuban? And then Dennis Quaid goes, you're in luck, Jack. Cuban is the best. (laughs) (laughs) 